clubhouse. I thought the opera war was under control, too. But Mrs. Astor has made me an offer, and now I don't know what to do. What sort of offer? A box at the Academy of Music. And? I must consider it, George. She obviously went through a lot of trouble to get it for us. Of course she did. To buy you off. So you think I should turn it down? Your argument for a new opera house holds good. The Academy's too small, too unambitious, and it excludes the people who are making the city great. Why would you give up your goal now? My goal was always a box at the Academy. At the Met, you'll be a founding member, and you can reign supreme. You don't need to be in Mrs. Astor's shadow. You make a good case. It's your case. I'm just repeating it. Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing the penultimate episode of Season 2 of the Gilded Age, Episode 7, Wonders Never Cease. It was written by Lord Julian Fellows and Sonia Warfield and was once again directed by Michael Angler. Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us on our Facebook group, the Gilded Age Fan Group, parentheses, HBO series. Our group has, ex- <laughs> has exploded to over 4,000 members in like yeah. a week. We, we started the season, I think, at like 2,100, 2,200. Yeah. In, in uh, seven weeks, we have exploded to over 4,000. So uh, It's awesome. I'm super glad. And people are being great about giving some feedback on our podcast here. I mean, Mike, we have several five five-star reviews that was were really, really kind and really generous in all of their compliments. So thank you guys for leaving those five-star reviews. And just a reminder, we assume you've watched this episode, so there are going to be tons of spoilers, but we're not going to go step-by-step and recap the episode. We're just going to hit the highlights, things that we had questions about or things that we think maybe you guys want us to delve into a little more. I have three reviews I'm very excited to read at the end. <laughs> Love the, it. The, the first one, no, I got to read the first one because it's super quick. This is from Kip Hazel via Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Did you quit? Where are you? Crying face. <laughs> oh, Kip Hazel, we're still here. We've just had sickness and illness and getting ready for the holidays and yes. moving and traveling. And our, our schedules have just been... These episodes, you, you listen for like two to three hours. There's like nine to 12 hours uh, from start to finish that go into all of these episodes. So they do take forever, but uh, we we do apologize that they're coming out later than we want them to be. You know what, though? But I love it that that, that everyone's waiting for them because we really appreciate that you guys are enjoying this. And we're going to jump right in because this is the penultimate episode. And I know, Mike, penultimate is one of your very favorite words. It's one of my very favorite words and often is one of my very favorite episodes of a season. It's the episode that sets the table for the final whatever it's going to be, whether it's going to be the final cliffhanger or final resolution of an issue. Whatever we've been working to all season, a well-done penultimate episode puts all of the pieces into their final spots for that. It's it's the last step of the chess match before the checkmate. And I love it. I, I, a well-done penultimate episode can make or break, I think, an entire season for me. 
I don't really think I even knew the word truly until we started podcasting. Because once we started analyzing episodes, then I really got a much better appreciation for the concept of the penultimate episode and how much we need to pay attention to that. You know what? Podcasting is like me. It's like improving my vocabulary. That's crazy, right? I, it's, <laughs> it's, it's done wonders for us on all fronts of our lives. So, oh, my goodness. Uh, what are your so thoughts funny. on this episode? What, what's your takeaway from this penultimate episode? As far as a reflection of the season goes this i feel like this seven uh, seven weeks have gone so fast i can't believe we're actually here already talking about staring down the barrel of the finale already i have my thoughts i'm curious where you stand at the end of this episode just kind of generally before we get into the minutiae i enjoyed this episode very much i have a bigger appreciation for Lord Fellows and and I will say Miss Warfield's writing. I, I think this is more Julian Fellows, but I'm not 100% sure. The way that he crafts his stories has made a lot of us ask a lot of questions. Like, why would they have that happen to that character? Whichever character it is. And, and right now in this season, it's definitely Oscar and, and Ada. And why would they even have them go through the trouble of having that experience? Like, what was the point? What I've learned about this series and specifically about Lord Julian Fellow's writing is that he has things happen where it tricks us into thinking that's the main storyline. That is what's happening with that character. When in fact, that little part he's telling us is actually a stepping stone to a much larger issue or or happening that affects more characters. So in that case, I'm not so quick anymore to be like, I don't get it. I don't understand why they took this part and they did it so quickly or they didn't give us enough details or they didn't, whatever the thing is that people often ask questions about. What I'm finding out is if you step back and give it another episode or two, that puzzle piece will fit in. But it takes a second because you, for whatever reason, we're very, very, very like micro-focused on very specific individual stories. And then we kind of forget to pull the camera out. And if there's anything that I understand about him, he loves this big cast and this big storytelling of like lots and lots and lots of little stories. So that requires requires us as the audience to not take a particular story and ask, why in the world would you put us through that without saying, wait, hold on, how would this affect the larger story much bigger than this one character? And if you do that, I think oftentimes you pull that string and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, this is suddenly revealed to me as a much larger piece of the puzzle as a whole. Does that make sense? It's a great point, and it's something that requires a little bit of a little bit more than just a little bit of faith in your writer, in your creator, in your showrunner, because you will gnash your teeth and beat your breast about why things are happening. Like I'm going about to, you know, we're about to talk about the the trial and misfortune of of Ada, Mrs. Forte, here in a minute. But I, I think we have to keep in mind your question of there's a reason for everything, and I think Lord Julian Fellows has has proven time and time again that these specific, very specific storylines will will pay off. They will affect the overall narrative. I, I think, I think Ada is a good question of why is she been made to suffer in this way? Uh, I think the Jack clock storyline is another one of it. It's just so specific for such a minor character. There has to be a reason for it. And especially with the movement that we get in this episode. So I would implore everyone to keep your question in mind. That being said, I have to ask, 
you know, Agnes addresses this in her conversation with Luke in his bed, in his deathbed, this episode. But this whole storyline of teasing Ada with happiness just to take it away so quickly, it seems particularly cruel on the part of Lord Fellows. I can't be alone in that. Yes, it is on the on one hand, but I, I do appreciate what Agnes says about, you know, the whole concept of, you know, she's going to look back on these memories and this love and, and it's going to like, you know, fortify her through the rest of her life. There's a lot of that that I do believe is true. I also think that only because you and I covered so much of like 1883 and, and older stories where lifespans just aren't what we all expect. You know, it's it's not the same as today. You cannot compare it to today. So things have to happen quickly in the story because people didn't make it like there was no medical intervention. There was nothing to really do for anything. So the second you get sick, you're, you're, you die. And the people were okay with that. Like they're used to that. So for us, it's incredibly cruel to have someone die what would appear to be very suddenly. But for them, I think it wouldn't have come off that way. I think when Ada is standing on the stairs, remember uh, Marion comes in having walked pumpkin, which Marion has to walk pumpkin. The indignity <laughs> of that. My, my idea is that she's actually involuntarying to walk pumpkin so that maybe she she runs into Larry on the street. Oh, I think even just to get out of the house, too. I mean, if anybody's ever had anyone like convalescing in the house and like the, the sadness and the everything going on or a hospice situation, stepping out, whether or not you're saying, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee, I'm going to go walk the dog, whatever. It's it's you know, it's like busy work. When Ada comes down the stairs and she scolds them because their voices are raised and Agnes is still in a huff because Oscar hasn't shown up at that point, uh, she scolds them for their voices carrying. Her face is so deformed with grief mm. and anger. And then, and then she, she spits angrily and, and resignedly. There's nothing any of us can do. Uh, talk about Emmy Reel for Cynthia Nixon. Look at her face, though. Her face, it, it doesn't look like Cynthia Nixon. It's so twisted by these, these emotions going on inside her. But it goes right to your point, though. There's nothing any of us can do. I mean, when Dr. Lewis is the one saying in this episode, go get a clergyman, go, ha you have to have faith. It's out of my hands. You know, and Agnes chides him for, you know, dereliction of duty because he's put it into God's hands at this point well no he's just being realistic and it's just what we had at the time you know and again we can't we can't think of it in today's terms we have to think about it back then and they wouldn't have had the expectation necessarily that the doctor could solve anything you know there was a lot of in god's hands because they didn't have a lot of options we have a lot of clips to get through in this episode uh so i want to hit this first one i'm glad to have a moment alone with you gives me a chance to thank you for your restraint I know you never wanted the marriage, and now you've been proved right. I was selfish to take her on at my age. No. You have given my sister a taste of the kind of happiness she had never known. I see that quite clearly. Only to desert her now, when she's hardly got used to the sensation. It has been too brief, certainly. But for the rest of her time on Earth, she has only to think of you. To feel warm and cherished and deeply loved you have changed her life that is generous of you Agnes I know how generous it is the truth can I ask you to help Ada when I'm gone well of course I'll help her it's my little sister 
I thought that was incredibly sweet. I, I think seeing Agnes say something like, she's my little sister. I mean, that's not something that we've gotten. And again, sometimes we have to have these storylines that feel really awful in order to have these really beautiful moments. And I think that's, again, something to remember is that we get put into these like very difficult situations, but then all the characters grow in different ways and relationships change. That is the story. That is how we move to the next happening, basically. So I, I mean, that clip is... Is wonderful in explaining what I was just saying about like, you know, there's reasons for things and it might not be so obvious if we thought, oh, she was supposed to get married and live happily ever after. Maybe, maybe she was supposed to get married and ha- and have this really short romance, really short love that then changes the dynamic with her sister, changes the dynamic with her and Marion. Everybody, she's a, she's a changed woman and for her character, maybe that's what she needed to be able to grow and take her next steps. It's so telling in that scene how she's holding his hand and he's holding her hand as they're speaking. I I was really happy that we got this conversation between Agnes and Luke versus between Ada and Luke, because this conversation could have definitely have been carried out between Ada and Luke. And, and, And in their final words together, they kind of summarize this. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me back. But this conversation specifically addressing why Ada needed to suffer, it was better delivered with Agnes in the role of explaining it because... Because of who she is as a character, because of how gruff we have seen her in two seasons, but also knowing that she is someone who has gone through the loss of her own husband and someone who has not had an easy life. It's important to see her in this one loving role as her sister. She's my little sister. That's the most tender thing I think Agnes has ever said in the entirety of the show. But for her to assure Luke that he did nothing wrong by, you know, what does he say, taking her on so late in life only to rob her of any time to enjoy, you know, the happiness that she has now, but also to speak on behalf of Ada and say she's better to have had the happiness, albeit brief, than she would have never had that in her life at all it's 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 important for the sincerity i think for that to be happening coming from agnes whereas it would it would feel almost expected or i don't want to say trite that diminishes it too much but it would be too saccharine if it was happening between luke and ada agnes gives it I think she gives it weight. I think yes, she gives yes. it like that's, actual... That's the word I'm looking for, right? She gives it... Because she wouldn't give it just lightly. She wouldn't say these things unless they were like unbelievably true and important. Right, exactly. And Luke addresses it and he acknowledges that, you know, I, I know I know how much that, you know, costs you to say, you know, he, he, he acknowledges that this has real sincerity and belief behind it because Agnes wouldn't give it up lightly. So I, I think it's an important clip. I, I think I think it goes a long way towards explaining why make Ada go through this. So is it cruel? Yes. Is it necessary, though? Yes, because at the end of the day, she's better off for it. I take a little bit of like mm, about saying cruel because I think that that's too like one sided. It's it's cruel in the sense of having something and losing it. So but, soon. But it's important. It's really important for the growth of Ada, for the for the growth of this group to see actually see Agnes have to acknowledge these these emotions that she does have with Ada, not just treating her with these like spitting little comments, but actually. Ex- 
expressing her love for her for her little sister and everything. I think cruel only works if you're looking at it from one angle. But if you're looking at it from the bigger angle, you realize like sometimes things have to happen. Sometimes things have to change in order for your character to be able to grow and change. And and is that cruel necessarily? I don't know. They're going to have to have some loss in order to be able to push to a new place. So that's kind of where I'm looking at at this storyline. And honestly, I'm blanketing everything I'm watching now with with Lord Fellow's name on it in terms of like anytime I'm concerned that a storyline seems like I don't know why we're doing this exactly or it seems like this happened too fast. What I have to remind myself is "Mm, this is serving the larger story and I need to pay attention to where this clicks in to the larger story. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place... I'm sorry. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. (laughs) Cheer up, Tim. We of all people can be sure I'm going to my reward. And so you are. Man, I would not want to have to recite my own last rites invocations from the Bible. Get it together, Curret Tim. Come on. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm just joking. I, I'm just joking. I wouldn't, I completely understand. That. I think the actor playing Tim <laughs> sells it well. And he really has, I mean, it's clear just in the few scenes that we've had with this guy, he really looks to Reverend Luke as, as a mentor and just can't believe that he's the one being put in this position. He was marrying these people, uh, you know, a month ago, maybe timeline wise, maybe even less, uh, so and now and now he's he's administering this you know anointing of the sick uh here at the end last rites yeah ah don't call it last rites this is something i've learned (laughs) we cannot call us even though that clip i just played was called last rites a little thing about the episcopal church it recognizes several names for the sacrament that we're watching here which is unction or holy unction uh some names include the sacrament of the sick or anointing or extreme unction the church though rejects the term last Last rites as inaccurate because it is not reserved for terminally ill or mortally ill injured people, as it is in the Catholic Church and some Protestant denominations. The sacrament may be sought in the, in the Episcopal Church and received by anyone who seeks healing due to a sickness of the body, mind, or spirit. So the Episcopalians rebranding the idea of last rites. It's not just for the dying; it's for anyone who's feeling like a little boo boo. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. I'd love to be on the receiving end of that and not feel like it's last race for me. Right. Like if you're like call the clergy, I'm feeling sick. I've it's got like the flu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially as we're heading into these winter months here. So that passage that they're actually reading is actually commonly part. It's actually not the the last rites prayer or the or the extreme unction prayer. That's actually from John chapter fourteen verses. Well, he's reading specifically uh, verses two and two and three. But verses one and three go: Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself and that where I am, there ye may be also. I've loved 
Luke being added on the show just because it's given me a reason to go and like just read, you know, the Bible a little bit, which was a thing that I spent a lot of time doing back in my younger days because um, I was super into different religions. And I, I took a lot of courses in college and in high school in world religions and comparative religions. Anyway, so I've really enjoyed it. That is a very reassuring passage, though, this idea of... I'm going to make a place for you. And then when I come for you again, you'll know where I am and where I am, you're also going to be this idea that we won't be alone, whatever comes next. And they say here, you know, for sure, I know I'll go to my reward. And I like that Luke knows so confidently that he's headed to heaven. Well, and that's something that I want to comment on when we're going back to the cruelty concept. You know, this could have been written with him thrashing around, throwing up, having huge pains, groaning, moaning, looking despicably disgusting. All this stuff could have been happening, but they did this as kindly as they could. You know, I mean, it was quiet. This was a quiet, pretty like uh, unremarkable death, if you will. I mean, it was really just like a release of his soul kind of thing. And every conversation was not dramatic. Every conversation was not like screaming or freaking out or crying. There was a lot of sweet conversations and quiet and peaceful conversations. So I think that if this had to happen in order for things to move on for Ada in a different way or for Agnes in a different way or however this is going to affect the overall household, I do think that they that they showed it to us on screen as kindly to the audience as possible. Maybe we could say it was cruel for Ada, but I don't think they were as cruel as it could have been for us watchers. I see cruel in the same way Luke says to Agnes it was cruel, that it was so late in life and so little time. But it's you and I, you and I have uh, have both, I think, adopted in the last year or so smile for having it happened instead of being sad that it's gone. I think if we can reframe it that way, then we can be happy for Ada in the whole that she got to experience this. And for Luke, who who went from his mother and never having love of his own beyond his love of God and the church to having real romantic love for someone. So he too got to experience this before it was gone and before his time on earth was up. And so let us be happy for both of them that they got to experience it instead of a life that easily they both could have lived had they not experienced it. There was a quote that I read really recently that actually like speaks to this so much. It's uh, you don't have a right to the card you believe you should have been dealt, but you have an obligation to play the hell out of the ones you're holding. That hits me so hard because I think everything with Rev and Ada says, look, man, we would have loved to have met each other at 20 years old. We would have loved to have had decades together, but we didn't. But we played the hell out of the hand that we were dealt and we loved each other and we enjoyed each other. And that's where we are. And it's, it's sort of like everybody can grouse that it wasn't long enough or be really happy she had that moment of love. This next clip was hard for me. Uh, it's going to be hard for me again to listen to, but we have to listen to it. It's their final words. It's, it's Luke's final words in the show, but it's their final words together. So let's take a listen. Can I get you anything else? What time is it? Do you have an engagement? <laughs> That's nice. What? To see you smile. 
My darling. It's alright if you... Go now. I'll be fine. Being loved by you has made me strong. Thank you. For what? For loving me back. How could I not? <laughs> I mean, what more can you say to someone? It's a very kind comment to say very kind release to say you can go now yeah it, I, for those of you who have not been around a situation where someone is passing away it, I, i've been there twice and it's very difficult to have the the courage and the kindness to be able to say that is it, it is extremely difficult but it is like the biggest gift you can give someone i'm so proud of ada for being so willing to see like the the greater good that that for Luke, you know, he was holding on for her certainly during this time. And so to be able to say like, it's okay, it's all right. It's okay. Uh, the, uh, you know. But you have to play this now because I'll cry. <laughs> You're terrible for that. Uh, that's the cruel part, right? And it's hard holding on to someone who's holding on for you. That's what you have it's, to do for them. It's true. And and honestly, people do hold on for other people. People do hang on until they feel like it's okay to go. And so, I, I again, I think it was extremely gracious and loving and kind for them to have Ada say this to him and for and for him to absorb that and again his death was not this big dramatic moment it was it was a quiet you know in his sleep death that was terribly difficult for all of us I know but at the same time I have to listen to Ada's words she said your love has made me stronger and I'm going to be okay and I have to believe her when she says that if this is how we had to get there it was difficult but Ada needed to feel like she had someone's hand on her back to be able to be strong enough to be who she really is and and I think I'm hoping 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 that this is what's going forward I don't know if we're going to get all of it in the finale or i mean of course we're crossing our fingers for season three but i i'm hoping we are going to see a very different version of ada moving forward now at the end of the day if you have loved someone and been loved by them what more could you want to hear than you loving me has made me strong and prepared me for when you're not here it's a beautiful sentiment and they they were a couple that was it they burned fast they burn bright i mean we were saying like oh my goodness what what, what what kind of love must you feel for a reverend to just start making out in the pew at church during choir practice like he he obviously loved her you know and and for anyone who's like yeah but you guys thought that he might have been a bad guy yeah we speculated because it was so fast and furious and so it was unusual the type of love that they had together yeah we wondered what is this and now that it is like sort of come out in the wash of like it was a pure love and it was all good and they were good people everything was on the up and up that's wonderful and i'm so glad that she had this and i'm so sad that there wasn't anything that could be done for the rev i mean they meet march 25th and this episode is taking place somewhere sometime in 
September, early October, because it's past August 21st, which is when Dashiell proposes to Marion. And it's not quite October 22nd yet when the Met and the Academy are having their opening nights. It's somewhere in between there, you know, five and a half, six months of this romance. So I think it was fair for us to question the sincerity, especially this character that we didn't know coming out of the blue. But but now at the end of it, and it was pure and it was real, it is a lesson to all of us that you don't know. You don't know when that person will come around the corner. When Yeah. And I would like to ask our audience, I, I, I would love y'all's feedback on this one. Would you rather have like a lifetime of eh, kind of love or eh, kind of relationship or or would it be OK with you to have a short but really intense, absolutely loving getting to dance, you know, slow dance after breakfast, listening to the music box kind of love, even if it's short lived? Like, which would you want? Which would you want more? And, and I think people fall into different camps but i could see very much where a lot of people might say you know i would love to experience that and feel that even if it was for a short period of time just talking about this storyline in in so far as it changed ada but also we've been talking about how it's changed agnes or brought out this aspect of agnes that we haven't seen before we know from the servants downstairs agnes never went to bed but in fact is waiting in the hallway just sitting there quietly because she knows at some point that door is going to open and at some point that door is going to open and luke will have passed and at some point that door will open and luke will have passed and and ada will be there lost and sad and need her big sister and she's there for her it's a sweet moment it- their embrace is really it you know made me suck in my breath because i was like wow you know we've we've not seen them in this situation so again when people say why why do we have to have this well because it creates all these other situations you know we wouldn't have seen agnes with this level of compassion had we not had this level of of sadness happen for ada it was necessary is what i'm trying to say in order for these characters to be able to grow and change and i think that's the most fair way to to look at why would a writer write this Let's stay in a Van Ryan house. Let's talk about Marion a little bit. The uh, the first significant thing with Marion in this episode is this conversation she's having with Peggy. We got to talk. We got to talk about what she says here and reading between the lines and where her mindset is actually at. What do you think of this one? It's pretty. They're all pretty. It just feels wrong when Uncle Luke is so ill. Mrs. Forte won't grudge it. She's glad you're engaged. They wouldn't come to the luncheon otherwise. Was I right to accept him? Well, only you can answer that. But he seems a nice man. He is nice. And kind and a good father and all of those things. Are you trying to persuade yourself? Not at all. I am persuaded. Then enjoy your luncheon in peace. <laughs> yes, I will. Okay, she's she's a hundred percent trying to persuade herself. I, I mean, why is she even trying to fool anyone other other than sometimes we feel like we have to talk ourselves into things? Because listen to the list of qualifications: he is handsome, he is kind. As far as we know, he has money. He he is a, a doting father. If if you know, as maybe an understatement, doting. Yes, he has plenty of cons. In one is his feelings on teachers and their role in the world. Two is she does 
doesn't love him. But let's move past that, though, right? Let's just focus on that pro list. If we're if we're making a pro con list, she's clearly talking herself into this. I'm curious if this feels something relatable to you. I, I feel I, I think it has to be relatable to a lot of people, but I but I don't know. It felt relatable to me sometimes having to talk yourself into something. I definitely think that when I get together with my friends and I'm wanting to sit around and go over things, that that's like exactly what I'm doing. I'm I'm trying to sort out my feelings. I'm trying to figure out sort of in the Gilmore Girls pro cons list kind of way of like, is is this the right step for me moving forward? Is this what I want to be doing? So I thought there was a very realistic conversation between two young women trying to be like, what am I doing? And what do I think? And then basically, you know, Peggy being like, uh, sounds like you're kind of trying to talk yourself into this. And and Marion having to make a decisive comment back at that point, because I think she felt like I can't just be like waffling on this. I need you to just be like, no, no, no. Like, I, this is fine. This is what I want to do kind of thing. But if you're talking about it at lunch, if you're if you're sitting there with your friend or if you're if you're trying to talk it through already, this is obviously something you have doubts about. This is I mean, clearly. So that's why you try to talk it out with your friend. And I really appreciate that they gave us a chance to see what she was thinking a little bit and and let Peggy kind of like poke at her brain a little, because that's all what we want to do. We want to be like, well, how's Marianne going to handle this? Like, what is she thinking? What's going on? So I thought this was a great scene. It was, especially as the run up to the luncheon scene where it becomes quite clear of all the people who may be involved in the wedding planning, Marion will be maybe the least involved in the wedding planning. It, it definitely feels like it's going to be an Agnes slash Francis joint. And Marion's just being maybe expected to show up there. <laughs> Marion is, you know, she's going along to get along right now, but we know this character and we know how far she has grown in this season more than anything, because nothing really happens as far as the wedding in this episode, because of Luke's dying and Marion obviously is, I don't, I mean, I think she's affected by it, but I think she's also definitely hiding behind the excuse of Luke's passing in order to not have to deal with wedding things right now. It definitely feels like something we have to put up on the corkboard for the finale because the seeds of doubt here are shown here. That conversation with Peggy, the takeaway has to be more than anything else, not that she's not persuaded, that she does, in fact, have doubts. I even named the clip Marion Doubts. This is one of those pieces that is moving into place for the finale. I want to skip right to the end of Marion's story because Dashiell clearly stayed at the house overnight. Uh, Lucas passed the morning time. The family knows about it. You know, Ada wakes up next to him. So it's a, it's a house in mourning when, when the day breaks. Dashiell leaves and she's very sad. She sees Larry coming across the road and he's still in his tux and top hat. Her face, Caroline, does the biggest 180. <laughs> it, it, it goes from morose to glowing in, yeah. in no seconds flat. Her entire body language changes. Not even her face, not even that she smiles. Her entire body language changes for the better. We can't ignore that. Yeah, I mean, she lit up for sure when she saw him. So, I mean, if that's not supposed to be... No, no, you could do it a couple different ways. You could say, here she is dealing with this extremely problematic, extremely stressful relationship. She's making this face and everything. And then she sees... We could just say a friend who has never been problematic and has always been helpful towards her, towards her and has understood her. So in one way, you could look at it like pure relief, like, oh, God, I don't have to talk to somebody where I'm like stressing out so hard right now. And of course, we could extrapolate that out to being like she's deeply in love with him and this is where this is going. But I think we could leave a little room for just like this is a very problematic situation with Dashiell and she's so relieved to see her good friend. 
if I'm Larry, <laughs> man, she keeps friend zoning him so hard. I mean, he's got a hanky at the ready. He notices her dry tears. I don't think Dashiell would notice her dry tears or remark on it, where he is elated because he got to come from the fireworks display at the Roebling house. And, and his demeanor changes for worry when he sees her face and he's able to detect immediately that she had been crying and there's sadness there. And he produces the hanky without, without hesitation. One, who doesn't love a guy who has a hanky in his pocket but his concern for her is so sincere impromptu he it's there's nothing planned with him insofar as marion goes it's it's all very earnest and in the moment reactions and it all speaks to someone that cares deeply about her and she always gives him the line of you're such a good friend my god i, I don't know if you've ever been friend zoned but is there any worse feeling than being like, oh, oh, heart of my heart. Oh, you're a good friend. Oh. Do, do women get friend zoned or is that strictly a man thing? I don't know. Is it? Do women get that? I mean, it has to happen, right? There have to be women well, surely, who, who pine surely. for men. And, you know, a guy is uh, there has to be a guy out there who's just like, man, I'm so happy. You're not some crazy chick that I have to deal with. You're just a good friend. I, that, right. That has to be a thing that happens. Sure. I guess it, we just hear it more often with men. All right. This is like one of those like two things can be true. So I think that she can think of him as a good friend and it not necessarily be a friend zoned thing because Dashiell, I would say, is not a good friend to her, doesn't care about her personal, you know, desires and her journey and her job and isn't really thinking about how she feels about things. That's not a good friend. Just on that, like, for, forget the romance of it all. Like Dashiell's not being a good friend. Larry knows the things she enjoys and is is a supporter of the things she enjoys. So if you just look at it like that, then... It's okay that she looks at him like a friend, that he is a good friend, because that is a part of what she would want in the love aspect of everything. So it's okay. There, We have this Ada Rev thing, and the balance of that, I think, is the Mary and Larry situation, where you have this like long, drawn-out, starting as friends, moving through other relationships for both of them, and still them being in each other's lives. Where that will lead, we will see. But it's like almost, if you look at it, it's like the bookend of the Ada Rev, of just like bam 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 we're in love and it's all over you know so we're seeing two different types of relationships here i don't know that it's bad that it's that it's kind of like stretching out yeah i mean i i maybe i maybe i'm being more facetious with the friend zone thing because he doesn't seem to mind it and i think i think he wants to be her friend before anything else and i i mean clearly he has feelings for her all you have to do is look at how he walks off at the uh after dashiell proposes in that in that cringe proposal at the um solarium to to know really where his heart is but i think for him being a friend she can turn to is a great step forward. I also think that Larry is a charming guy. He has a very infectious, very charming smile. He has very kind eyes. Now, you've heard me use the phrase kind eyes when I refer to a lot of different men, whether it has been in a, a real life person that I'm referencing or whether it be a character on a TV show. Kind eyes are a big thing for a lot of women. I know I, I, I'll say, what does he look like? And, and I'll often hear, oh, he has very kind eyes. There's something about that. So for him, it's a little, I'm telling you, as a woman, it's a little bit difficult to read because he is a charming guy, because he has kind eyes. Does he have those eyes and that attitude towards 
everyone or is this special to me? Does he actually love me or is he just that kind of guy who's charming and has kind eyes and is caring and would get a handkerchief out for anyone who was crying on the street? Would he stop and say, oh, my goodness, are you okay? Larry seems like the kind of guy who might. So it's a little hard to read his level of love as well beyond true friendship. That's true. That's true. And also, she's not new to this world anymore. And so she has to realize that Larry Russell is, much like his sister, a player in the in the marriage market. And so that there are many suitors. And so maybe Marion doesn't see herself even as being in that contest, if if that is a concern. May, you know, Larry may, may not even be on her radar as a romantic interest because she has been so unlucky with suitors and love interests in the show. The eyes thing is interesting because now that you're mentioning it, I'm thinking of Larry's and he does have very kind eyes. Dashiell, <laughs> Dashiell, that you see them. Yeah, Dashiell has, has very cruel eyes. He has very, he has very cold eyes. His eyes are typically, okay, so this is going to be a weird thing to say. Larry's eyes tend to crinkle at the corners and make this very soft, almost like he's smiling all the time, even when he's not, even when he's just like concerned, right? He's got these crinkle eyes. Whereas, Dashiell almost always has round eyes in this, like, I am not sharing your emotion. I am not, nothing is being telegraphed to you through my my facial eye area. I know this is all very weird. I'm very, very, very into faces. Michael tell you I'm, I'm pretty darn good at recognizing lots of people. As and bad it, as I am, she is equally <laughs> in the opposite direction wonderful at it. <laughs> well, it's one of those things, though, if you look at that part of someone's face, it tells you a whole lot about them. And those big round eyes tend to be sort of this, like, I don't want to let you know what I'm thinking or feeling. And that can be very unnerving. His eyes are not, maybe cruel is not the right word. They are furrowed. It's very hard to read where you stand, which can be suspicious and it can be off-putting because there is a subconscious thing that we pick up from people and Dashiell and maybe this is also being colored just by how he has spoken to Marion and how he's conducted himself and how you know it seems like he is in search of a mother as much as he is in search of a wife or a or a woman to do his bidding a woman to do his bidding. <laughs> well, I mean, you're not a real teacher, are you? I mean, oh, no, all that was terrible. But his eyes kind of betray that, though, right? You can't his his. You don't look at Dashiell's face and run to it feeling like you're going to be protected. Larry's eyes give off a sense of he will protect you. Maybe, but 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 check this: when you want someone to go along with your plan, people do this thing with their eyebrows and their eyes where they like raise their eyebrows up, and you make your eyes very round, and it's like this thing of like. You're going to go along with this, right? There's like this face that you're making. And Dashiell has that face not having to do with marriage, but like almost all the time. There's this like, go along with me because I'm telling you something, whether it be I want you to come to the party, whether it be I want you to ride in the carriage with us. Think of how many times Dashiell and Francis, for that matter, coerce her into things, whether it be taking a ride in the carriage, whether it be, you know, whatever the thing is, and it can be very, very small. They make these eyes where they raise their eyebrows, they make their eyes very round, and they're like, you're going to do what we say, right? Larry never has those eyes. He always has these like, tell me what's going on eyes that are going on that I'm like, 
like, yeah, okay, see, he cares. This guy's just trying to get you to go along with him. I love it. I love it. I, you're you're 100 percent right, and you, I know you you've studied these things and think about them. So I think you're you're expressing it better than than most would. Before we leave these guys, there's just one little thing here I wanted to bring up in their conversation. Marion, in course of talking about how unfair it is for Ada and how bad she feels for her, she credits Ada as being the one to bring to have brought her from Pennsylvania to New York, and where would she be without Ada for that reason? Larry says, I should thank her. And it kind of goes under the radar, but it's a really smooth, wonderful line if you pick up on it, because because Marion doesn't really react to it. So it just kind of hangs out there, but it's extremely sweet and and very, very endearing to Larry. Mm. I was just having, you know, I just, while you're talking, I was having this whole realization about how these two men use manners. And this one's a weird one, okay? Dashiell weaponizes manners, weaponizes etiquette, puts her in situations where she does not have a choice but to act, quote unquote, right, which makes her have to go along with things he wants her to do. Whereas Larry uses manners to comfort Marion, giving her the hanky, stopping and and sort of like handling things in a way where he is still really following all the etiquette rules, but he uses them for good. Whereas Dashiell uses them in a like a manipulative way because he knows manners would dictate that you don't do or say X, Y, Z. So he puts you in that spot where then, and I'm not just talking about the proposal, there's conversations in front of Francis that where she feels like I have to go along with this because etiquette says I don't want to be rude to this little kiddo i don't want to hurt anyone's feelings that's so funny right that they use manners as like a very different tool with her i love that you brought that up though because there's later on well actually earlier in this episode larry actually weaponizes etiquette and manners but in a business sense you're making a great point that he doesn't weaponize it for personal reasons right for or romantic reasons or at least specifically as it relates to Marion, right? He doesn't put her in these positions where he knows that she won't be able to or or will have to go along with something. But in the speeches, when it's time to give the speech, he knows he can get away with exposing Mrs. Roebling's plot because Mr. Tate or nor anyone else related to the project is going to jump up and take the microphone away from him and stop it because etiquette won't allow his speech to be interrupted in front of the president of the United States or any of the other dignitaries that are gathered. So Larry actually weaponizes the etiquette of the moment where he knows he will be able to say at least at least until he is finished and relinquishes the microphone, he will be able to get away with whatever he wants to in that moment and does. And it's wonderful, but he doesn't, in on the same hand, demand any kind of quid pro quo from Marion for manners and etiquette on that side of it. So, which, well, it makes Larry complex. It makes Larry more more complete of a character, right? He's not just a, he's not just a big-eyed... He's not like a mushy-hearted man just walking around the world like, oh, here's your hanky, ladies. He's like, increasingly he's not more sap, like his father you know? than we than we ever thought he would be. Oh, my gosh. And I know we've talked about this offline. I don't know if we've talked about it, honestly, in all of our episodes, how much they have done such a beautiful job of transforming his physical appearance to look more like George. His curls are so much more like George than they were at the beginning of this series. Now, if I'm dead wrong on that and someone's going to pull up the pilot and say his curls are exactly the same, I'm perceiving it differently and i don't know why he looks like his father 
of course, because he's acting more like his father. But there is like they're doing that ringlet curl right in his forehead. That is so George that I'm like, oh, man, this is such a such a beautiful way to use not words to show change in a character. They've they have physically transformed him, though. They've allowed him to show some facial hair growth, some five o'clock shadow. Oh, God, his posture it seems like he's so much. He seems taller, which seems funny. He just looks more like a grown man versus a little boy. His arc this season was to transform into a grown ass man. Yeah, he went from boy to man. Yeah, he did. You're totally right. Uh, and so in the same way, Ada had to go through her 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 experience with Luke and that loss to come out on the other end. You've made me stronger because of you because you've loved me. Larry, through the Susan Blaine arc, came out the other side of it. A, a, a more worldly man, a, a, a man, period, but one also more worldly and hip to the way of the world and the way things work. Nothing like a little bit of heartbreak in order to toughen you up and, and make you a little more apt to get along in the world. Valerian shippers out there, I rejoice. I feel like I feel like you're still in the game. Don't let Dashiell dash your hopes. <laughs> See what I did there? Yes. Uh, it's not it's not the first pun. I'm, well, it is the first pun I'm making tonight, but it will not be the last one. I definitely oh. have one about Bertha and her box. So. Something to look forward to. Yeah, wow. I'm just saying, have any of you guys on Mike Pun Watch? Don't worry. There's another one coming. <laughs> Keep your pencils pointed. <laughs> oh, the tragedy of Oscar Van Ryn. The Van Ryn house took it in the teeth in this episode. Okay, so many, many people saw this coming, including Mike, who had lots of different scenarios in which many of which in the four were still coming out with Oscar on the bottom of the heap. How do you feel about all of your predictions? How do you feel about how this actually went? I mean, I think it's great. I, I think, well, not great for Oscar, but I think it was set up <laughs> great so <story> well. Telling. <laughs> because, you know, what I was really thinking about, I was ruminating on was going back to that last conversation we really saw with Maud, where she goes to Aurora's house and is asking after Oscar about whether or not he is a fortune seeker because he wouldn't be the first, but you know, I don't want to get hurt again. That conversation is is completely transformed in my mind now because she was seeking out is he a fortune seeker? Because will he fall for this scam? Will he go after it? That's why she's asking Aurora that question. It wasn't to vet him for her own heart. It was to vet him for how much of a mark he could be at with Caster Bridge Pacific Company. Genius. Genius. Because, again, this is what you're talking about, the way the writing is. We think it's this one thing, and it's very obvious. And we talked at length about how maybe she was even setting a test, a fortune seeker test for Oscar. That was one of the possibilities. Well, she was setting a test for him, but it was more, I believe he will fall for this fraud. And he, in fact, does fall for this fraud that, he, in fact, he was a fortune seeker and he was not acting just out of his love for or quote unquote love for Maud, but was also trying to pad his bank account. And that character flaw of Oscars has now bit him in the ass. They did a beautiful job of showing Oscar running around town, running to Crowther's office and having it be empty, running to where Maud Beaton was picked up on the street, which if you guys listen to our episodes closely, we mentioned that like, hey, that seems super sketch that she doesn't actually have anyone meet her with the door opening like she's always standing on the street like that seems weird. 
Lots of this stuff. I loved we actually had that racing around town freneticness. Like lots of times shows don't show you that. They just say, I went to Growler's office and I went to where I picked her up and she wasn't there. Like, you know, and that's it. Instead, you have the sweat coming off Oscar, the people threatening to call the police, the, you know, the the man who let him in at the office saying like, nobody's rented this. Like, we don't know what you're talking about. Wow. 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 I mean, it was amazing. Even the plaque was gone, which yes. I had noted that plaque because the camera lingered. Now go back. Now yes. this is this is the great thing, right? When you when you get to the end of the mystery novel, reread it because then you can pick up on all, all the clues that actually hint towards the answer. The camera lingers on that Casterbridge Pacific Company plaque every single time he enters that office. That's how I knew. They don't think they ever even say Casterbridge really in dialogue. I knew it was the Casterbridge Pacific Company though because the camera lingers on it every time Oscar is entering that office with Crowther. It unspooled so well. Yeah, as bad as this outcome is for Oscar, obviously in the whole Van Ryan household and when we're going to get into what do we think could possibly save the day here, I got to say that actually running around town brought my heart rate up and brought me to the sweat of Oscar, which is great. And the way they they seed it, even when Oscar's not on screen, right? At the start of the charity meeting, Aurora starts off by saying, I invited Maude Beaton, but she never got back to me. She must still yes. be in Newport. And yes. we even talked about where is she going at the end of the proposal? They kiss and she says, well, I'm, I have to go home and pack. And he's like, I hope I see you soon. And she's like, I, I hope so too. And then there's talk in this episode that she's still in Newport tending to her sick aunt, which made me question, why would she have been staying with friends in Newport when we first met her if she has an aunt, sick or otherwise, who lives in Newport? It's all sketch, man. And a sick aunt? That's that is the that's <laughs> that's like doing your laundry or like lacing your tennis shoes. It's just a cliche excuse that's like, oh, Lord. I don't know. This was really great. Now, what do you think is going to go on here? We have Oscar having to have this gigantic realization. I'm very fearful for Oscar because he has had a lot of exes against him here. He, He was not able to seal the deal with Gladys. He had this bad falling out situation with John Adams. I'm very worried for Oscar in terms of his ability to be resilient and come back from this. I I feel like if you're an audience member who's sitting thinking like this could be a guy who could kill himself and we've had that happen in this series. So we can't say, oh, Julian Fells wouldn't do that. He most certainly could do that. That's one of those things where we have to say, "Okay, what do we think is going on here? I have to put on the table that Oscar could do something very drastic. I also want to keep on the table that something very miraculous could happen here. Something we don't see coming could happen. And then something in the middle where maybe they are giving us some good clues. But there's a lot going on here. I believe in Downton Abbey, the closeted homosexual character that was in that show, I believe did try to kill himself. I I think I'm remembering that correctly. And he goes on to have a whole redemption arc and we like him, I guess, by the end of the series. But he's a real bastard and really unlikable through much of the series. And I'm pretty sure he tries to kill himself. So just just if we're looking at Julian Fellows's work, it's a very similar situation to, to Oscar. And I agree with you. You should be worried about Oscar and his his mental health here. Just the way he is... I mean, Blake Ritson kills it in this episode and this episode as a whole. 
again, in the same way Cynthia Nixon is is earning her Emmy nomination here, I feel like this is a great episode for, for Blake Ritson to submit because over the course of the episode, you are seeing him lose control. The sweat is increasing, the the frantic, resigned nature of it to the to the fact where he kind of limps into John Adams' house. And he hasn't even done the hard thing yet of telling his mother what happened, but he he's on a whole roller coaster, which is all mostly the drop in this episode. Does the fact knowing that he was going to propose to Maud this night at the bridge opening festivities, doesn't that turn the knife a little bit more on how much this sucks for him? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, the whole thing. I mean, he was going all in with this woman. He was swindled so hard. I mean, I, again, just going back to your small example of the plaque outside. I mean, to have that guard who let him in be like, no one, no one's been here. Like, that is such a mind blowing. What are you talking about? Like, I was here. And it's not like even there's a hole in the wall or an outline of the plaque. It's like it was all imaginary to begin with. It, it's really well done. And you you see him even maybe questioning his own sanity a little yeah, bit yeah. When, when that man is when that man is is telling him there's been no one there's been no one here for ten years you know yeah, like yes it, but, it's one of those but, you're but like but then what the Whitmores Mr Whitmore that old man with the beard at the door yeah. at her house at her quote unquote house and he says I've picked her up here a number of times have you though or have He's you picked, picked her up, her up and outside dropped her off there. That's the other thing. He picked her up and dropped her off there, which means like there was multiple, like we saw one pickup, but the pickups and the drop-offs, I'm like, what the hell, Maude Beaton? Like, first of all, you guys, we cannot focus all on Oscar on this. Let's give Maude Beaton some massive props for this wild scheme that she pulled off. She is really an amazing woman in this time, I think. Bold as hell and like, wow, wow. We are seeing all these women in in most of our storylines be in a situation where they're trying to get out of stuff, right? Like whether it's a proposal, whether it's whatever it is, they're trying to try to figure out how within societal rules, how to behave. I love that we got a character who doesn't play by any of these rules and is like taking what she wants and everything like very amazing. We have we have to give a moment to her for her acting and for everything she did to get Oscar to fall for her. In the 1800s, there is a woman whose name uh, was Cassie Chadwick. Cassie Chadwick turned out to be the most famous pseudonym of a Canadian con woman named Elizabeth Bigley. Elizabeth Bigley spent her 50 some odd years on this earth, basically being one going from one con to another, going to prison for fraud schemes. But her greatest scheme she ever pulled was a, I think, about 20 year ish plus, maybe 15 year ish plus con whereby she convinced the financial world she was the illegitimate daughter of robber baron baron Andrew Carnegie and on his name secured for herself millions of dollars worth of loans which she turned into the most luxurious of living now most of her impropriety took place out in Ohio they I think there's a I think there's a, a thing where she even was referred to as maybe the queen of Ohio she had a gold organ she had had chests and chests upon of clothes and jewels that she had secured herself, millions of dollars of loans that no one would ever think to call upon because who's going to go confront Andrew Carnegie with with loans being made by his illegitimate daughter? But she was trading on this name and on this scheme until until she was eventually caught. Andrew Carnegie actually attended her trial and she went 
to prison. I think it's 1906 or seven. Um, she eventually goes to pr- prison for this scheme. But talk about, I mean, this, this ripped from the headlines. Mm-hmm. The, Is uh, this one of those situations? Do you think that we will continue to follow any of the pod beaten stuff? Like, will she be caught? Like, let's say this goes six seasons or something like that. Like, does this come back around or, or does this kind of stay true to what I think the pattern is, which is like, we have these small stories that, that sort of propel the, the entire character, a lot of all of them forward into the next, you know, conundrum they have to deal with. Is she just the catalyst for that? Or do we actually come back to her? Like, would we possibly see a trial of her? Would we possibly see her be caught? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we did? Be kind of rad. <laughs> I mean, because Jay Gould is a character established in this show. And and what we're going to talk about Jay Gould in a little bit. We're not done with him. And I think we're definitely, this episode definitely sets up a season three plot line for or problem for George, which is going to involve Jay Gould. So it would be kind of wonderful to see Jay Gould get dragged into have to go to a trial for his quote unquote illegitimate daughter that may, <laughs> you know, in fact not be true. Just to go back on Cassie Chadwick, for, so it was for eight years she used her fake background to obtain loans. She eventually totaled around $2 million, which is equivalent to about $65 million in today's currency. She was very successful. Yeah. She claimed to give money to the poor and to the suffrage movement, which she was the suffrage movement. And she was the <laughs> poor to which she gave money. But trading awesome. on this idea, which is which is what we discussed with Maud Beaton, was the illegitimate daughter of Jay Gould. Who's really going to question that? This is what we were just talking about. This is weaponizing manners. It would be rude to bring it up about if that's really her father. That It's too rude to talk about it. So we don't do our due diligence to find out if this woman is who she says she is because it would be it would be so outlandish to actually go to the person she's saying is her father that would that would lack all civility and manners so she's using manners to her advantage i love it i think there's some some sad poetic justice that this all begins to unravel for oscar by him coming across the street to talk to George and say, and, and thinking he was something of an equal now to George, right? He's, his chest is, his chest is out. His back is straight. He thinks he is something on the same level as George Russell now when he says, I hope there's no hard feelings or awkwardness behind us, between us. George has no fucking idea what he's talking about. He thinks he's talking about Gladys. He's like, yeah, hey, sure, sure, Gladys, but also, you know, the, the Pacific, you know, the, the Chicago Railroad or Atlantic Railroad deal. And, you know, I'm a major player. I'm a major shareholder in the Casterbridge Pacific Company. George is like, I have no fucking idea what you're talking about, bro. I know everyone. So if you're part of something, I don't know what it is. It can't be important. For George to be the one to kick the domino that will then unravel throughout this episode is some kind of weird karmic... I don't know, retribution to Oscar for his pursuing Gladys, which should he suffer karmic justice for that? I mean, I guess that comes, that's a good question, right? Does Oscar deserve what comes to him in this episode for pursuing women like Gladys and Maud to live this lie so that he can get along in society and, and, and fulfill the role that he feels he has to fulfill, which is not the role that, say, John Adams thinks he should be filling. Let's listen to John Adams real quick here, because I, I actually kind of come out of this episode not really liking John because of this clip. Let's take a quick listen. The money's gone. I must have cashed the check the moment I left the building. And nobody questioned it? They asked the manager, but since he knew my writing and I've made no complaints, he let it through. 
what about the police? I'll report it, but it could take years, and it's unlikely I could prove a crime had been committed. They'd say they tried their best, but the company went under. I'm so very sorry. The sad thing is, I really liked her. I'm not pretending I was in love or anything, but she was good company. She made me laugh. I really thought we could be happy. You mean happy enough? Stand down, man. Your passive-aggressive catty bullshit is not needed right now, John Adams. Well, but you know what? This is the this is the die that Oscar cast, right? So, however it comes up, it comes up. He does. What does he expect John Adams to think or feel about him with all this? You know, he's he's let John know all the times when he is like trying to you know manipulate other people and do all this stuff. How does it feel to be manipulated, Oscar? Like, how does it feel in return? Hopefully, hopefully, this gives Oscar an opportunity to figure out how can I exist in society? Of course, not be in any type of danger per se, but how do I do this and not go around manipulating and hurting people? I I hope it gives him pause about how he's conducting his life. Maybe, but I still feel like John Adams gets to to have these high ideals and this self-actualization of I am happy for me because as Oscar tells us, he doesn't, he's not responsible for carrying on his family's legacy. He has brothers to do that heavy lifting. He's afforded the luxury of being honest with himself and in the world. He doesn't have to hide who he is. Oscar does not. And, and, and I don't know that it's fair to hold Oscar to the same level of self-actualization as John Adams because it's not really possible for him. Oscar has obligations that are greater than himself. I, I certainly don't want to hold it against him, the idea that he feels he has to live life his life a certain way in order to fulfill his familial obligations. I think that's very relatable for a lot of people. I agree with you. I agree. And and this this comes down to maybe you want to we could even tie it back into our manners and and societal norms and all that kind of stuff at the time you know he could not live a an open authentic life so then in that case what are his choices so i so i will i will say all right so all my comments about how does it feel to be manipulated all i can think though is that he was doing all that manipulation without having the balance of feeling like boy i really don't want to be doing this to this person like he was treating the other people so transactionally that i think that he needed some comeuppance here in order to be like how does it feel to be treated as a transactional party you know how does it feel when you were about to propose and i think as much as i know he is a gay man i think he actually did have some feelings for Maud, and and whether it's just some sort of admiration for the fact that here was a woman doing banking and and she was just so smart and clever and all this kind of stuff like he definitely had something there for her whether it was just pure admiration or actual more than that i don't know i still think he needed not comparing him to john so much but just thinking about who he is as a person he needed to feel what it feels like to be taken advantage of so that he can at least re-examine the way he's going about things and you are right his hands are tied and i'm not you guys there's a whole element of like this is absolutely unfair to oscar all of the things that are happening all the obligations on his shoulders and then all the reasons why he can't be who he really is it's all not right 
And then once we are in this situation, though, how do you act? How do you treat other people in that situation? And, and we know that he's been treating people very disposably and, was, and he's willing to use them for things. And now he's been used. So how will that affect him? He still has to do certain things to protect himself. But will he do it with a different tact? That's what I want to see out of him. If body language matters, and I think I think you and I both subscribe that actions speak louder than words and body language is extremely important. We're going to hear body language come up again when we talk about Peggy and T. Thomas Fortune in this episode. Uh, the body language of that final scene of Oscar when he's just completely sobbing, he's on his knees. Uh, John Adams isn't crouched down next to him, embracing him. He's standing over him. Oscar is kind of hugging at his legs. That's not a that's not a very sympathetic pose or body language for John. And now, granted, John has been hurt. He he was legitimately hurt by Oscar. So, how much does Os does John Adams really owe Oscar here? How much of a shoulder to cry on does he owe him? Maybe not very much. But you did let him in his house, and you are feigning at least, or at least you're at least expressing words of sympathy uh, and concern for his well-being. It it struck me as a very cold pose to be standing over Oscar as he breaks down in front of you. All I have to do, though, is is remind myself of all of the dinners and all of the times that John has had to sit there and listen to Oscar reveal a plan in which he is going to 100 percent take advantage of a woman and her family. How should John take this? You know, like, oh, I'm sorry, one of those times it didn't work out for you and she was actually smarter than you. I don't I don't know how much sympathy you offer to that besides just saying, you know, you got to figure this out, Oscar, in a different way. But that also is so demoralizing to the idea of change, right? Because if, at least I feel anyway, I feel like Oscar did evolve in the season. I feel like he did change. I feel like his pursuit a courtship of Maud was different than his courtship of Gladys. Gladys, he pursued. He spied her. He he scented her out and went after her. Maud was kind of put next to him, and they developed a thing together mutually, or it seemed mutually. So it it seemed like an evolved. Ver if, if if you're going to have to live a lie, and you're going to have to not be your your true authentic self facing the world, the way he went about his courtship with Maud seemed to be an evolved, changed Oscar than what we saw in how he pursued Gladys. Oscar's behavior was not different. The women's behavior was different. Gladys was this meek little mouse who, who, yeah, he appeared to be like this giant looming over her. But Maud was more his equal. And so she would go toe to toe with them, with him in conversations, in hanging out. She was willing to be kissing with him and doing all kinds of stuff. Like she was more on his level. So I don't know that Oscar really pursued those two women so differently. I just think that Maud was ready for him and, and actually like could play the game. I don't think about that. I like that. I, that, that, that actually, that makes sense. So I don't give Oscar growth on that though. Okay. I just have well, to that, say, well, that's important though, because know? I think at the end of the day, how we perceive how John is treating him here and how we perceive Oscar and what his comeuppance is, right? This, my question started at the beginning of this, this part of the conversation was, is this karmic retribution for Oscar and how he has lived his life? I think I'm going with yes to answer you. I, I honestly think it is. And it's like, it's like the ghost of one of the, 
uh, one of them. I don't know if it's Ghost of Christmas Present. I'm not sure which it would be here. But it, it seems like he got a taste of what he does to other people. And all of a sudden, it, when he saw it in his own face, and I know I know that Christmas Carol is going around right now. Everybody's watching it. So it's like suddenly when it, when someone points out, like, this is your life. This is what you're doing. Then Oscar, I mean, yeah, I think we're absolutely going to see growth out of him moving forward. But he needed this slap down to stop going around being like a pariah to all these women. Maud, Maud, Beaton. Where, where are so you, Maud? Where, oh, where, my God. Where, where are you, Maud? Maud Beaton, where are you? When they said we're going to call the police, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to get insane. <laughs> like, Oscar, run away. <laughs> that whole part where, you know, he's trying to ask for her oh my Just, god every, every door even when he gets to uh yes. when he gets to in front of aurora he's like where is maude maude beaten maude period <laughs> beaten period i love it right. i have to get that isolated clip too before we get to his confession with agnes and that uncomfortable conversation that ends the episode i actually want to jump to a clip agnes talks it talking about oscar she's getting she's increasingly flustered with him because he hasn't shown up to the house even though she has paged for him given luke's passing um and she has this it, it feels a little bit throwaway but i wonder if there's something here worth noting about oscar and his psychology Tasha, at least one man in this family heeds my call where is oscar you haven't heard from him he's been held up i'm sure he'll come as soon as he can john you delivered the note i gave it to his man but mr oscar wasn't home ma'am perhaps he's having trouble getting about the city People are out everywhere, all because of the bridge. The truth is, my son is no good in times like these. Perhaps that's why he stays away. Dashiell, please do sit down. Marion, get him some tea. I mean, the Marion, get him some tea. The way she eye rolls, I, Mary may need to go see a doctor. She eye rolls so hard when Agnes says, <laughs> go get him some tea. But he's no good in times like these, that perhaps that's why he stays away. Is this a reference made to when his own father died? Who else would have died that there would be experience in time, in these kinds of situations for Agnes to be talking about? That's a good question. I mean, we don't have enough background to know like what other family, you know, situations have come up, but it's clear that he has a track history. So there has been several situations we got to think that Agnes knows like he's just not good. And, you know, as parents, we know we've we've each got kids that some maybe are better at, at bad times than others. Some will go run and hide in their room and some will come and rub your back like we all know our children. And then there's some kids who are really great at this times and some that are not. I appreciated that Agnes like actually saw this in him and had like we don't get a lot of mother son information like about what their relationships like or how much insight either of them have into one another not that much so i'm i liked it that this was this was implying they had had a long history of oscar not showing up when he's supposed to show up but again is that a shock to us when we know the personality and taking advantage of others and stuff like that i mean it's not a surprise that he doesn't show up when he's called or show up necessarily when those counting on him need him to be there. Mm -hmm. Or when times are difficult, like he shies away from difficult situations. He he ends up, you know, which, hello. I mean, isn't that what John was kind of saying? Like, like you hide away from these difficult things and you, you, you do all this stuff. Even the fact that at the end of the day, when he, he, the, the search for Maud beaten is over and he gives up the ghost, he doesn't return to 61st Street. He goes to John's house to commiserate. What did he think John was going to do? John's not going to write a check. So he's just hiding 
from going home to 61st mm-hmm. Street because that involves him then having to have this conversation we're about to play with his mother about what happened. My mistake involves you, mother. Me? I made an investment that paid a large dividend in a short time. So when I had the chance to invest more, I did uh, a great deal more. Does this mean you invested the Van Ryan money? Well, how much? How much of my money did you invest, Oscar? I just learned that the company doesn't exist. None of it exists. Casterbridge Pacific, Maud Beaton, the woman who led me there. You don't understand. She's Aurora's friend, too. She was everyone's friend, but no one really knew her. She lied to us all. And now she's taken our money. Well, then you have to get it back. Go and get our money back. I can't. There's no recourse. The money is gone. And so is she. How much did you lose? Nearly all of it. Baranski takes a gasp and I flutters her eyes back at that at that line of um, nearly all of it. She looks like she's straight up having a stroke in the most realistic way possible. It, it's, I don't even know how you train yourself to act that way. She's like, <gasps> and like her eyes do this weird flutter thing. It's, it's insane. Go back and watch it again. Let it burn into your brain. Be- I loved her growl. Like when she was like, oh, much did you like? It was like, oh, <laughs> the whole thing. I was like, oh my God. Like everything. She, she, you know what though? As a mom, woof, that's what I'd say. I'm like, go get it. Like, what are you talking about? Why? are you talking to me go fix this you know she was everyone's friend but no one really knew her question what is going to be the fallout on aurora fane for bringing maud into everyone's life oh i so you think that at some point that agnes or it would have to be agnes maybe oscar is is going to kind of like put the whole situation at Aurora's feet, like you're the cause of this? I I wouldn't be surprised if there is some cooling towards Aurora, who has really skated by in this world, always being on the right side of things, or at least being everyone's friend. There's a point of view here, if you're not looking inward for taking responsibility, where if you're going to look outward... It is Aurora who has brought her into our life, who vouched for her. It was always Aurora saying her mother was a Stuyvesant, her father was a this, and her illegitimate, illegitimate father was Jay Gould. That was all Aurora. No one else was doing vetting on this. This was this was Aurora matchmaking, intentionally matchmaking up at Newport for Oscar. In a lot of stories, yes. I agree with you. I think that, yeah, it would, we would go running to Aurora and be like, where'd you find her? Where'd you, you know, what's the thing? But that goes back to my original question of, are we actually going to pursue figuring out who the heck Maude Beaton really is and actually try to bring her? That's not really the way that these stories have been written. We don't typically get that. What we typically get is here is something that happened. It was a big explosive thing. What is it going to create for our characters? If this was a different story, I 100% agree with you. We might have spent episodes tracking down Maud Beaton, going to a trial, doing all that stuff. But my gut says... No, Maud Beaton's just a cautionary tale and we are going to have to move forward. And Aurora might get a she might get a one or two sentence like uh, I don't think we're going to trust your friends anymore. But I do not think there's going to be like scene after scene or or somehow Aurora's going to be on the outs with them or anything. I don't think that's going to happen. Not based on the writing we've seen thus far. 
I want to put up on the corkboard just to see if Agnes, because I think it's only Agnes that would do it. Because we've seen, as far as family goes, Agnes seems to be the only senior family that Aurora actively has in New York. How is Aurora related? We don't know. She's a cousin. Maybe that makes Agnes a great aunt. An aunt or a great, must be an aunt. It would be an aunt to Aurora, which maybe... Which would mean her parents would be one of their siblings. Or married siblings, oh, right? Oh, maybe because on Arnold's side? On Arnold's side, because, okay. because Aurora and Dashiell refer to each other as cousins. So it would make sense Aurora would be... Agnes would be her aunt, but via marriage. Okay, so nobody get mad at me for talking this through because I know somebody's going to say, you guys, they said it right in, in episodes two that this happened. Okay, don't get mad at me. I'm just trying to kind of remind my own self, like, how close is she to everybody else and who amongst them would feel the most connection? Of course, it's going to be Agnes, but but Oscar stands a good chance of saying, like, what the hell anyway to her. Yeah, I think he's going to be too embarrassed at it, though. But I, I, I don't know either. But I, I'm, I'm curious, though. Uh, you know, if Agnes, I, I think, I think her, her ire and anger is going to be specifically pointed at Oscar. He's the one that she entrusted with their funds. But can't you see Agnes being a little, uh, you know, Aurora doesn't get invited to this lunch, at least for keeping her in the doghouse for some period of time. I don't know. I don't think it's going to be a major thing. I don't think it's going to be a crux or a storyline. But the, you know, Aurora and Mister and Charles have have skated by without any any dirt on them really at all so right. it would be interesting if, well just for dramatic sense for my spinoff my you know <laughs> what's new in the Fane's neighborhood spinoff but with them and mrs fish as their neighbor you know it would be an interesting little wrinkle in their squeaky image if if uh, she if she paid some collateral damage price via agnes for it i appreciate that i mean it'll be interesting i definitely think that uh oscar is is going to have a huge change does Oscar deserve any credit for coming completely clean to Agnes here and taking responsibility a bit or at least acknowledging straight what happened and how he lost the money or nearly all of the money versus, you know, he definitely could have kept this from Agnes. He could have tried to fix it somewhere else. He could have tried to leverage the house and make more money to replace the lost money. He could have come up with some kind of harebrained scheme with John Adams or on his own. But he does come after a fashion and sit and tell her he made a, he made a mistake. He lost all the money. Does he does he get credit for that? Is is that something that mm. we should? I don't want to say pat him on the back, but at least put in the check mark for you did the right thing here versus trying to do something and maybe making it worse. With the framework of everything that happened with George and Turner and all of our yelling about had he just ran right to Bertha and told her right away, we would all have a lot more compassion and the situation would be much better. Because we said that and because we kind of like put our flag there as like, this is the way you handle things when things go wrong, then I think we have to give a little bit of credit to Oscar for not like, like you said, spinning out and trying to like go and I don't know, refinance the house or do something wild. I don't, I can't know what, but he is in banking and he would have access to some people with money. He didn't go and steal money out of accounts. He didn't, so far as we know, he's not going to do these types of things. He went and he told Agnes. So even though it's like, yeah, okay, we'll give you a pat on the back for being honest because you weren't more dishonest. 
guys. But at the same time, I mean, it's it's kind of like I, I'm kind of giving it with like a okay, like the most tacit of packs, right? Kind of, yeah. Good but, job but for we, not making it worse, dummy. Yeah, kind of, but we, you know. but uh, but honestly, I I really think that we have to give him some credit for just immediately trying to, like, I mean, he immediately tried to find Maud, and he immediately tried to tried to tell Agnes he didn't make it glossy. You know, I mean, he really just told her what happened. He could have made up a fake story that made him look less bad, <laughs> you know, because he looks really like taking advantage of and terrible in this story. Which which we know he I mean, he made up a story earlier this season when he got beat after drinking in that right. bar. Good and example. He, and he and he did make up a story and versus coming clean on what really happened. So I guess we give him a little growth points for saying like, okay, I mean, we would have rathered you just be an honest guy earlier, but hey, you are showing like that. How much, how much credit do you give someone when all, when the jig is actually up, when all the cards are played? Like he doesn't have anything left to do. So he goes and tells mom, does he get credit for that? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's the most tacit Listeners, of Listeners, you guys ask us. You you guys tell us. Like, what do you think? Does do we should we give him any credit for this or be like, nah, dog? It was the least you could do is go tell the woman you spent all her money. <laughs> Are you familiar? Have you accepted the Ermacher Vairin der Stata New Yorker into your heart, Caroline? I don't know. These are Have I? <laughs> this is the watchmaker society of the city of New York. This is the ancient horological society of New York in existence since 1866, which still exists today. And I have uh, to let them in my heart. That's the thing. Well, if your heart has a clock that ticks and talks, I think you do have to <laughs> let it into your heart. Okay. Uh, look at Bannister hooking up Inventor Jack with his contact, Mr. Mr. Schubert of the uh, of the Ermacher Verein der Stadt in New York. Jack on his own merits uh, with the genius of creating an escapement with, that operates without oil so it doesn't gum up the works and slow down the timepiece gets himself added to the society and now his patent can be revealed, uh, reviewed. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, is it is it possible? I guess. Does it make any sense? No. Are you super excited for Jack now that he may actually get this patent reviewed and maybe get this patent and maybe launch a whole new life for himself? Hell yeah, I'm excited. I, I, what do you make of this entire this entire Bannister knows a guy storyline and where it winds up with Jack? It's a little fairy godmothery. I mean, I I love that Bannister has taken such a, an interest in Jack's invention and in the patent process in general. Um, you know, I guess we could believe that Bannister. You know, he's an older man. He's been around for a long time. He he probably does know a lot of people. So mm, okay, I what would be more interesting to me, I guess, would be where they are in society that Bannister could call upon this person. Because the way I could imagine you meet someone like that might be being a guest in the Vine Ryan home, and maybe he overheard or was told who this person was and what their credentials were and that type of thing. But like my brain is like trying to think like in what world can a staff person contact someone who I don't also think is a staff person? Are they allowed to do that? And is that cool with their their society? I thought about that. So here here's my headcanon on this. Uh, this Mr. Schubert, so this is the society is watchmakers. So these are people who are in the trade of being watchmakers or clockmakers in New York. So Bannister being the head of the Van Ryn household on the servant side, 
I'm sure they have grandfather's clocks or grandfather clocks or mini grandfather clocks or other timepieces that over the years, Agnes is probably sent to be repaired or purchased. Uh, and you would go to the best and the German watchmakers at the time are the best. That's why they're the ones who set up the watchmaker society at the focus of this, uh, of this episode, which again, real society created in 1866, but it's a society, but these guys all work in the trade. So in my head canon, Bannister is actually been a customer of Mr. Schubert and, and their relationship stems from Bannister being a, a man of respect because he is the head butler in the Van Rijn house probably has a literal working relationship with Mr. Schubert. And so maybe that established over X number of years, uh, that is what allows him to contact Mr. Schubert for this for this favor. I think a favor to be sure. I don't think this is one friend helping out another friend. I think this is a man who is in the trade and it is in his best interest in order in to keep the Van Ryan house happy because he probably relies on some commerce from the Van Ryan house is what brings him is what brings him to the house. Okay, so just to be clear to our listeners, that was completely Mike's canon, right? That's that is my, not anything we canon, saw nope. on screen because I don't want anyone to say like, wait, 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 what line or what character said that? Nope, nobody said that. But I do think that it's fair to kind of a little bit just wonder, like, hmm, how how else? I mean, you guys as listeners, how do you think that Bannister would have known this person? How would he have favors to Curry? Maybe he's worked in other households. I mean, I'm not, I was not given that indicator, but it's possible he, this was a someone he ran across in a former employee's household. There's, there's more to it for sure, but that was the main thing that I was asking myself was like, I know that class and 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 sort of the echelon that you're on does dictate who you talk to and the idea that you could just like call upon someone. So I wasn't really positive, but I like what you're saying that like, well, this, a class maybe would have been to, lower right, he's not, he's on not the going, ladder. Right. Because a tradesman's not going to turn away money, right? He's a guy who has a right, shop, and and when Bannister comes in with a piece, right. whether for himself or for Mrs. Van Ryan, he's going to respect that money that's being exchanged there. So I'm trying to think though. Let's let's just think for just a second. Can we think of any of our staff members, anyone on, on in any any of them? Going to any shop, I, I can remember Marion and Peggy. Right? Didn't didn't they go into um, like Bloomingdale's? Right. Can we remember anybody else going anywhere else? Just just to try to think about, like, has anybody done that? And I don't think we have. I don't think. But it did. It did. I mean, obviously, it opens up the world of like, of course, they go out shopping. Of course, they go out and do things like they have a whole life, which I enjoy very much. Like we talked about, I enjoyed seeing them in church. I enjoyed seeing them like outside of their working quarters. Like it was really nice to kind of see them have more of a of like a whole life, a whole full life. So it's awesome that they gave Bannister like the concept that like maybe he has friends and a whole life out there that we well, don't it's know. Also, I think a credit to him being the man, I mean, as far as station goes, he is as high a station as he can be in the strata of the part of society that he occupies. So who else is Agnes going to entrust to getting her, you know, great, great grandfather's grandfather clock serviced? She's going to entrust that to Bannister to ensure that is done properly with the right person. So it all makes sense to me, you know? What we find in life is that somebody who would be so into clocks as to actually be a part of a whole society and and care that much about it, that if you had someone that like 
had a, a potential invention that would like tweak someone's brain and be like, I actually do want to meet that person because I'm so into my clock making and everything that I would want to meet your person, even if they aren't of the right station. So I just said one little fact before we move on from this is uh, so this watchmaker society, they actually conducted all of their business, all of their society meetings in German. They didn't switch to English until around the time of World War One. So interesting, Jack is going to become a member of the society. I wonder if he's going to have to take lessons from like Mrs. Bauer in oh, German so in, in order to go to these horological society meetings. How funny. Hey, how'd you like Armstrong in this in this uh, episode of like all of her just like chiding comments? There's always some Why nastiness. Why was she so cheery in the beginning of the episode? That was the most, it was almost like a pod person, right? She, yeah. she's, she's eating the food and even I think compliments it, but then resorts, she reverts to her normal stuff complaining about the amount of food. You know, Mrs. Bauer has a great thing. She's like, I can't do anything so I can cook. That's that's what I do. And people are going to be coming by the house. Everyone who's been through this knows food becomes an important part of the death ritual. So if you have someone who's going to cook for you, of course, they're going to make a ton of food. Armstrong is just the worst. Just <laughs> the worst. Put her on the boat and send her somewhere. Mm, she doesn't have a lot of compassion for anybody, does she? No, and that's a, we want to talk about karmic justice. I mean, Oscar is one thing, but God, what is what is in store for Armstrong in this lifetime? Let's go to Peggy. I want to talk about Peggy a little bit. I want to talk about the school storyline, which we continue in this week's episode. I think it's fascinating. I, I, I dug so much into it getting up to speed prior to recording our last episode where it was introduced. It's an important bit of New York history. It's an important bit of New York education history. But Peggy here is a witness to this storyline. She is not the center of it in any way, shape, or form. So... Do we care? Really? I mean, I feel like this storyline is a perfect example of what Dorothy cautions her daughter against later in the episode. Don't spend your life reporting on other people's life and in that process forget to live your own life. Peggy has become trapped in this storyline that is not her own, and she's only bearing witness to it. I don't want that at the sacrifice of Peggy's own storyline moving forward. Oh, my God. Is it possible that Dorothy's talking to us? Don't just be analyzing other people's shows. Get out there and have your own show. <laughs> I've already cried once in this episode. I can't even begin to interpret <laughs> take Dorothy's storyline into my own life. I'm not oh ready to it. I'm not you're not ready, ready to. You're not ready to be like, I sit behind a computer all I will, day. I will Uh-oh. sooner learn German. <laughs> am I not living my life? Am I just commenting on other people's work? What am I even doing oh, here behind this Yeti microphone? Doing? I know. Okay, so I enjoyed the storyline because I'm a teacher and education is so important to me. And I love everything that they were talking about here. I loved that you brought up so much about the the druggist conversation in our previous conversation. And I don't even know if that was online or offline. It was. We, we talked about it in the episode with the, the Philip A. White is the man in the real story who is who actually ends up leading the charge to desegregate the schools in order to keep them open. He actually leads the he's appointed by the mayor to lead the committee in charge of closing black schools to make them co-biracial schools so that they so that black students can continue to get an education. That is a druggist by the name a Brooklyn druggist by the name of Philip A. White, who is a man of color, who Arthur, especially in this episode. 
seems to be channeling, right? I One of the things that I want to pull back a little bit from the specific storyline and just comment on Arthur himself, I feel like we are seeing a whole lot of growth out of him being interested in this because there was a lot of other times when I felt like he was the kind of dad who went to work, stayed at work, and when he came home, he didn't really want to know what his wife and daughter were really into. And maybe we just sort of like eat a supper and be like, all right, all right, whatever, like sort of like chickens talking at the table, but I don't really care. This, he was so involved. He passionately cared about the school and what was going on here. And I don't think that we've had any opportunity to see Arthur engage in that way. And so for that type of growth for this character, I was like, okay, Arthur cares about stuff going on in his community. He's not so just like in his own head or or has these own rules or these things that he thinks should be happening. And he's just going to be like sort of inflicting his will on other people. It's not like that. Like he, he really, really cares and really wants to do something different here and is supportive of Dorothy and Peggy, which is like a big yay. I think that this is the start of an Arthur redemption arc for us where we actually get to see some healing between Dorothy and Peggy and him through their work together for the school. So maybe the school isn't the most important thing in the story when we come to these characters, but their work for it, I think, stands to create a better foundation for them. I mean, it definitely seems a great setup for the spinoff that you and I have been pitching for weeks now. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the, you know, Gilded Age Brooklyn storyline, because Arthur is a is an established business owner in Brooklyn. The education of the youth around him and where his store operates makes sense. The fact that he, a business leader, would take a role in this makes sense. The fact that he, someone who has had to go through vendors wanting to deal with a black man needing a white person's endorsement in order for them to do that business makes sense. And the fact that he would then bring that experience to bear here, which leads to Marion coming and speaking and making a pitch, which leads to the Irishman Patrick Ryan coming on board and maybe bringing other Irish teachers on board. It all makes sense. It It is the right role for Arthur to be filling here. And maybe it does, you know, begin the start of an arc of redemption for him and bringing him back to Dorothy, who has remained cool to him ever since the fallout of uh, their grandson and and keeping that from Dorothy and Peggy. Does it relate to Peggy, though? I, I think you've made a great argument that this is a great storyline, maybe for Arthur and maybe for Arthur and Dorothy. I just don't see where Peggy's role in is. I mean, just by this episode, they've made Marion more of a role in this storyline, maybe. Well, I would say that Peggy is because seeing for her, seeing Arthur care and have compassion and want to be a part of the change, I think is where what I'm talking about. It's it's a very indirect. It's not one of those things where she's not sitting there saying to Marion, boy, I'm really surprised my dad's here. You know, he doesn't really get involved in stuff like this. This is a real new side I'm seeing to him. But you get that impression that the women are very like, wow, OK, get in here, Arthur. You're well, I think help Dorothy out. even like, says, right, you were enthusiastic yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think that he is. Is like renewing who he is as a person with both of these women, with both his wife and his daughter, which that relationship badly needs some some help. You know, I mean, there there's there's a lot going on between him and Peggy, too. So I, I that's where I'm going with this. And then also, of course, for Peggy, it involves the whole covering of it with T. Thomas. And we're I know we're, we're moving into that next. So for me, I felt like it also involved like her questioning 
how things are looking to other people because of this storyline. And then also having to have her reflect on like, okay, I'm talking all this stuff about all these young people going out in the world, like getting educated and doing all these wonderful things and all the potential that these young people have. Like I'm standing here listening to this, but I'm a young person with a lot of potential and a lot of things that I could be doing in my life. Should I just stay doing what I'm doing? I think the storyline asked a lot of questions and created a lot of different dynamics that were important. You are a mother and you are a daughter. Mm -hmm. So from both of those points of view, I'm very curious how you feel Dorothy handled her beginning to insert her judgment and the wool and and acknowledging and making sure everyone understood the wool had not been pulled over her eyes that Peggy apparently affirmatively lied to her that I don't think we actually saw on screen. I don't think we saw Peggy say... She was just real vague about who was going on that trip. Right, but it seems (laughs) at least Dorothy is taking it as a lie to her face that there was not a third person that went with them, but she keeps her powder dry. She she intimates that I hope there's nothing going on here more than and what I think may be going on here because I've raised you better than that. Does she handle this with the care that you would expect? Or maybe in your case, as a, again, as a mother and as a daughter, uh, would would expect or want your mother to act with? I'm going to flip it on, your, on, on its head because you are a lawyer. And one of the things you say to me all the time and probably to others is I don't ask questions I don't already know the answer to. So to me, if I'm the daughter, if I'm Peggy in the situation and Dorothy says to me, hey, I kind of noticed that that byline only had two names on it. How odd when like, you know, uh, where are the other reporters names? Mm, every part of that to Peggy should be like, I know what you're doing and I'm giving you the opportunity right now to tell me the truth. And if you fool around here, you you best know I know what you're up to. So I love I actually liked how that unfolded because I thought it was very organic and very realistic to how a mom with an adult daughter, because this isn't a little kid, you can't just go yelling at her, tried to open the door for Peggy to be honest with her and say like, well, this is what's going on and this is what I think. But I mean, of course, she has to throw her like her shade on it of like, I know I raised you better than this, but it's what we're all thinking of like, Peggy, we all know you were raised better than this. And we're all pretty confused about what it is that T. Thomas and Peggy together equals like we, none of us really get it. So Dorothy was doing a great job of asking the questions we were kind of wondering. Marion and Peggy are good for for revealing their feelings via talking it out even though they may not necessarily be aware of their feelings. And remember, Marion diagnoses her with being in love with T. Thomas at that point, which may be true. All of that I, I bring up just as a reminder of whatever Peggy is doing and whatever Peggy is feeling doesn't seem to be just a fling, but seems to be involving real emotions. And now real emotions that affect not only her her romantic or otherwise with T. Thomas, but also her career. I mean, her career has become, her career at the Globe anyway, is now intermingled with whatever she is or is not doing and whatever her mother may be suspecting her of her of doing or not doing is all wrapped up into that. And so she doesn't actually come clean to her mother, but she does certainly begin the steps of maybe seeing that she can't continue on with T. Thomas in the way that she may want to, right? Up until this point, coming out of their trip to Tuskegee, 
she seems like she at least wants to see if she can continue to work at the globe while keeping her relationship, whatever that is with T. Thomas separate. This episode seems to escalate that that may not be possible. Uh, again, this is the body language section I wanted to talk about. T. Thomas offers a, a hard liquor toast in their office when they're the only two there. Mm-hmm. And while talking to her, he has the most lascivious smile mm-hmm. on his face while he is playing with the flask on his crotch, playing with the bottle. It is lewd. It is suggestive. And I am not a prude. I am I am lewd and suggestive. And this was like a lot for me to watch. The way that he has the flask in his lap and the way that he's playing with the, it's with the bottle top. It's the way that he's unscrewing the cap like and that he's smiling part. at her like with his mm-hmm. eyes down like it's ooh. it was a lot and it was something that we actually talked about a lot of episodes ago when she when he when she first started at the globe and we said you know is this gonna be one of those situations where they're both they're both working late and they kind of like they drop the papers or something and then they both go down to get it but they yeah. like bump into each other like there was a lot of that feeling going it literally on happens. in that moment they, she does yes. drop the thing and they do yes. bump into each other but we said that like right. i'm talking episodes ago oh, yeah, yeah, so no, many episodes ago that was our that biggest I, fear that that was what was going to happen because right. it felt so ripe for that to happen so then when it went even further and he's playing with that flask and he's given this look and he's just like he's given them all i mean every signal i was like what does peggy do and i know i know again we said boy if she loses her job over that kiss in the barn that i will be livid if that's what happens as we're moving through this i'm like thinking if Peggy isn't pursuing this relationship, I don't know how she can stay at the Globe because it's very clear to me that he is all in on whatever it is that is. And I think we can only say it would have to be a mistress affair situation. There's no indicator that he's divorcing his wife. There's no indicator that that marriage has gone south. It's just this other part where like now also there's Peggy in the mix. Your initial question was about this body language, right? I think every bit of body language says they're either going to have to commit to this and say, okay, we we are moving forward in some some sort of couple way or like, Peggy got to get out because I don't, they can't live like this where he's playing with the the cap of the flask in his lap. Like this is not going to fly, not in this society and just not, not generally. This might've been fun for a little bit, but uh, I don't think it was fun very much after this. No, and the fact that Peggy gets herself out of that, she doesn't, it would have been very easy just to lean forward and whatever would have happened would have happened. And I think a lot would have happened had she not pulled away in that fumble, both reaching for the thing moment. Um, but she leaves. She leaves. She, she doesn't recross the line like was crossed in the barn. So that indicates to me that she's not ready to go all in. She's not ready to accept, you're right, what would have to be a mistress role. Remember her conversation again with Marion? She says, no matter what happens, I understand I'm the one who's going to get hurt out of this. Isn't that so terribly sad to be in that situation? I mean, I, I she's can damned if she say... does. She's, she's damned if she do. She's damned if she don't. Uh, there's no good out for her here, is there? No, I, I don't think there is a good out. And that's the thing. Like, and I think it's going to probably come at the expense of her, her career path. And I, I'm, what I'm hoping is that she is going to either find another opportunity or figure out a different way to use her voice and use her writing that as the audience, we don't feel like is a demotion from what she was doing at the globe. Like, I'm very hopeful that if she does decide, like, I can't stay in this situation and I, and, 
I would love to think that the two of them could have a conversation where it's like, hey, it's clear we have some feelings for each other, but like you're married and I really want to work here. And so we got to like quit this. But I don't see that conversation happening. So in that case. Nor do I see T. Thomas being amenable to that. No, I don't think so either. So, I mean, uh, I don't think that there's a whole lot of paths for this to go. It's it's pretty much a fork in the road that they that they are at right now. And I think that I will give Peggy enough credit. And of course, now that her mother has made her feelings known like if you pursue this path with this guy i am absolutely down on this like she's she's got to know like this can never lead even if t thomas went and divorced his wife and all that kind of stuff she'd probably always have a glare from her mother on how this all started and what was going on so it's like it's already on on this like bad poison ground i i just i wanted to work but it's not gonna work <laughs> right and I, I i don't think it's any small thing that her mother introduces her to the much more age-appropriate isaiah martin who studied at the the Institute, same school where Peggy studied and is an aspiring teacher. You know, uh, Isaiah Martin in this episode played by Lawton Royce. Um, I don't know if we're going to see him again, but I think it's I, it wasn't lost on me that Dorothy made an attempt on the Wyatt rooftop as they're waiting for the fireworks to begin to introduce this young man to her daughter, something that we had not seen her do at all in the course of this series. Um, she, she does here, you know, like, you know, that's a that's a mother being a mother of here's an alternative to you making a horrible life decision. I think it was interesting on the rooftop besides the conversation with Isaiah, Peggy reconnects with girlfriends that we haven't seen other than Mary and we've seen, we've not seen Peggy with anyone of her own age, but here are what look like school friends or or girlfriends from, from around the neighborhood uh, that she's catching up with. I mean, and it's clear she has missed a lot of their life, right? She's not even sure if one of her friends is with a guy still and yet they're having a baby, which I I think was just shorthand for Peggy has been checked out on those that she's been around because of her time on 61st Street or her time at the Globe. She has maybe lost touch with her Brooklyn roots a little bit. And at the same time, her friends are impressed with her career. So they're they're seeing it as a good thing. But it left me feeling a little sad for Peggy, a little bit like you have missed life going around with you. Your friends are getting married and having babies. And here you are. You know, trying to figure out if you're going to begin a mistress relationship with your boss so you can keep being a writer at your job. So I, I want to take that and I, I spin it a little, a slight bit different because I think you're 100% right that like she did have some sort of epiphany of like, oh gosh, you know, like where where have I kind of gone off to and, and where where was my path going in a different way? I feel like there was something about that that kind of was like a getting back to your values, getting back to your own roots where you feel like it's only from Brooklyn to Manhattan. But at the same time, there's a feeling of like a country mouse to a city mouse. And it's like you got caught up in the big city, girl. You got caught up in all this craziness and all these fast moving, talking men and all this kind of stuff. And it's like she goes and she's like kind of with her with her old friends who knew her way back when. And there's like a closeness there and like an intimacy there where she's like, Maybe it gives her a little perspective is what I'm trying to say, I guess, where she's kind of looking back at back at the city, literally standing on that rooftop and thinking like, what did I get myself caught up into? And like, what did I sort of like become? And what did I do? Not that she necessarily wants to get married or have kids or do any of that stuff, which P.S. Let's not forget she was married and she did have a kid. I think it made her reassess, like, where am I and what do I want to be doing? And I think that's where we're going to see that that fork in the road 
decision be made is it was being made right then in her head of like, man, I looking back on this situation, I, mm, I'm not exactly sure if I'm where I want to be anymore. I think there are some great gowns at the end of this episode, but I couldn't help but notice that Peggy dressed like she was. She looked like a Disney princess to me. And I mean that in a, yeah. I mean that in a good way. I, I thought it was a very grand gown she was wearing, but I'm not the one to speak on these things. I don't, I don't have the words for it. I was curious what you thought <laughs> of her dress at the end there. I really loved Peggy's dress. I thought that the like light airiness of it, it had like a really like fairy dress quality. I can see your princess comment very, very much. The, the sleeves, the everything. I did not notice the first time we we were talking to her, but one of the times when we went back to her, I noticed on the front there was like a, what appeared to me to be like a butterfly design. And I'm going to chalk that up to a having a transformation, having some sort of she was in a cocoon state. Her dress was these butterflies coming out in this kind of pastel color, not real bright, not real strong, like maybe their first emerging kind of thing. So I'm going to say visually to me that spelled change, that spelled growth that spelled some sort of transformation. Uh, we were seeing that, I think, on the screen throughout this episode and really throughout the whole season with her. And so the, so the dress was a, both beautiful, but I think it actually also served a narrative purpose in telling us a little bit about her thought process. I mean, I like that. I, I think it's funny when she does turn to the front and we actually get to see the front of the dress. Mm-hmm. It's when she's trying to kind of get away from her mother and she t- she like turns to the front <laughs> and like takes a big swig of her drink. She's so uncomfortable in that scene, even though she's among her family and friends that maybe she's known her entire life. And she looks extremely uncomfortable. Again, just on what body language is, it's why does she look uncomfortable? Is it because of the city mouse, city mouse thing uh, where a uh, city mouse country mouse thing where maybe she's left these people behind and feels like she doesn't fit in here or is it because of the decision she's made that has put her in this position that now she is at this fork in the road she has to decide where does she go from here and maybe she's recognizing in that moment that she's maybe not that proud of the things that she wants to tell like her friends come and tell her like a lot of stuff that they're very proud of and there's some parts to her story that she can't really share with them in a way that she would be proud of and so I think when you have that moment of being like man here are my friends and they're all telling their story and I'm reticent to tell them about things that I'm doing. Maybe I'm not doing things I'm very proud of. Maybe maybe I'm not doing the right thing for me. I think I saw a lot, even her turning away from her mother, that that action alone feels like so kind of like embarrassed too, like a little bit like just shame, like, oh, I'm just not so sure that I can face everything that my mother's bringing up right now or whatever. There's a lot to this. And and I really, I appreciated getting a chance to see Peggy's friends very much. That's something that we've talked about when they said last episode, like, oh, and Marion's, all these, all of Marion's friends are here at this proposal. And I'm like, who are Marion's friends? I would right. love to know who Peggy. these people are. <laughs> right. Who is was not like, there? <laughs> right. Who are they? And, and what are they talking about these days? But I was glad we got to see Peggy's friends and got to see what was going on. I also want to say that seeing her friends doesn't, doesn't necessarily make her long for their life. It just makes her kind of say, am I doing everything I want to be doing? If they're happy in what they're doing, am I happy in what I'm doing? I love fireworks. Like I'm one of those people who ooh and awe at them. I know there's a lot of people who will be like, whatever. They're just fireworks. I've seen them a hundred times. I'm always wowed by them. I don't know if you're one of those people, but I always ooh and awe. I love 
fireworks. You love fireworks? I love fireworks. It is Why one do of you my, love them? I, I love the color. I love the noise. I love the sel- smell of sulfur. I, I, I love setting off fireworks. I love watching you fireworks. You set them off? Oh, I can never do that. I'm not brave. I can't light things on fire that I don't explode. want to say on, <laughs> on air that I love fire, but I, <laughs> I, but I love fireworks. I love the color. So even if it was CGI, I was absolutely wowed by the spectacle um, uh, at the end of the episode over the bridge just it it transported me so in 2000 i had just begun working at my law firm july 4th came around so i was pretty new to the firm but i was there for a couple of weeks and the office is right on the east river that year because it was the millennium year it was 2000 they had all of these extra fireworks set up for the fourth of july macy's day uh, not is it the macy's day fourth of july yeah, it's the Macy's Day, 4th of July, you know, spectacle, the Gucci fireworks, all of it. They had barges up and down the entire East River set up. So where my office was, was right outside of South Street Seaport in the lower Manhattan area. So very big tourist area, great location. There was a barge that was being set up of fireworks right there. So right actually just south of the Brooklyn Bridge was where one of the barges of fireworks were going to be. The Brooklyn Bridge is just north of where I'm talking about on the Manhattan side. It's interesting. Just to note, this episode, everyone watching the fireworks except for Mrs. Bruce and Chef Josh are in Brooklyn. The Rolling House we had talked about a couple episodes ago is in Brooklyn, and the Wyatt House where where Peggy and her family are watching the fireworks is also in Brooklyn. So only you know we only see we see mostly the Brooklyn view of these fireworks. Anyway, since so 2000, I took the train into the city because I was wondering. Well, my office should be open. We're it's a 24 hour operation. It's not unusual. You know, even in their three weeks, I had already been there around the clock. So I was like, I wonder if I could use my pass and get into the building. The fireworks view would probably be pretty cool. Push my way into the building. Security is there. I get my pass. I go up. There's like there's like families, partners were having picnics on the 34th and 35th floor with like their families. So I wasn't the only one who had this idea. So I joined the festivities. And Caroline, when I tell you, people talk about watching the Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade from like on like the office buildings, like on the parade route. Very cool experience. Watching fireworks explode at your eye level right outside of your window, the windows rattling. They were wow. rattling in the in the conference room watching these fireworks. It was one of the greatest things I had ever seen in my life because they don't put those barges there. They don't use all of those barges every year. This was like a special year event that they had the extra ones. And, and no year after that, I don't think they ever had them that far south again um, for the for the spectacle. But we had like a TV going, so we were able to hear the piped in music and then watching the fireworks explode, rattling my chest, rattling the windows, exploding at eye level with all of that color. One of my greatest memories. So I love fireworks. That was all a long way of saying I love fireworks. So even with the CGI (laughs) effect, watching the fireworks explode over the bridge, that whole area of Brooklyn and of Manhattan, very special place in my heart. I lived and worked there for years, years and years and years. I was very taken by the whole thing. This whole episode made me very emotional in different ways. I guess it did. Well, I loved it, too. And I I thought it was it was special that we went around to each character's, you know, little groups of characters and got to see them from their different vantage points, you know, seeing the fireworks and sort of getting the idea of it was very much of like the Edison, you know, lighting kind of thing where you felt like everybody was out. Everybody was amazed. Everyone was enjoying it. Just the bunting all over town. It felt like a Fourth of July celebration, which now, again, clearly the real bridge opens May 24th. Right. So we know we're not there. So but we know we're after 
after August 21st because of the the Dashiell dedication. So again, we're somewhere maybe between September and October in the show's timeline, but all the bunting around the town, it was such a nice little detail. Everywhere you went, they didn't call attention to it, but the whole city was done up in like this 4th of July-esque celebration. I The whole thing made me very happy. It made me feel like it was like very summery and it was very, I don't know, it got it crawled right into my soul and made me happy. So even Mrs. Bruce and Chef Josh, I think watching the fireworks from 61st Street in Manhattan would not be the greatest view. Now, I'm sure there are no large buildings to get in their way. So for sure, they could see the fireworks. I feel like it would be a very it would feel like it was very far away, just location wise. That being said, they probably still had a great view, though. I mean, if you get to see fireworks live, go do it. That I guess that's my point. <laughs> Well, getting back to Mrs. Bruce and Chef Josh and some of our servants, we should talk about this just a little bit more about them. Yes. What do you think of these two? I mean, this courtship, the fact that he invites her to go to the fireworks and takes her up to the, the roof. And, you know, this is this is following them having maybe going to the concert that we never actually got to see them do. Are you pro these guys? Do they make sense? Do you think they were, do you think they're cute? together i think that now that i've seen like a lot more conversations with them i feel like i am a hundred percent cool with them like i think that they're great i'm glad that they found each other i'm curious if it's going to serve a larger purpose i'm curious if there's something more about them becoming a couple than meets the eye because i just i i it's kind of like the alarm clock thing where it's like why are we spending so much time with this particular interest in each other because it's not like a world a whirlwind thing where they're getting married tomorrow and we're following you know like their their wedding preparations or something like we're just watching someone date and so I'm curious about why. Why are we watching these two date? What, what what are we going to get out of this? And I don't know if we're going to see that, you know, this season. I don't know if it will go into season three, which we're all crossing our fingers for. As, as two individual people, I think they're lovely. I think that they clearly enjoy spending time together. And, you know, I hope we get to see them more. Let's talk about Watson and Flora. Flora comes by. You, you oh, see, my you, gosh, you, Mike. Was that the best? I love that we called it so well. It was the thing that oh. made sense. So I'm so happy that it worked out that we were But right. not only that, it even, like, doubled down on what we said. Like, we said, oh, maybe she, he needs to have a conversation with her. But this was even further that her husband had done this without her knowledge and without her consent and without her, like, yeah, this is what I want to happen to my dad. Like... It was even bigger than we thought, honestly. Well, bigger, bigger because she wanted the very opposite of what Robert, yes. of what her husband Robert had proposed. She wants him to be a retired banker named Collier in town with an apartment, with a salary, involved in their life and in their world, she says. You and me will be okay. Whew. I mean... It was even better than we thought. Like I said, like it was even better. I don't think he could have imagined, even after hearing the initial plan, he says, would I be able to see you and the children sometime? And she's like, yeah, you don't get it. Like, I want you in our world. I want you to be my father and and known as such. I mean, Collier is reborn in this scene. Now, sadly, that means he's going to have to quit the house and and leave the Russell downstairs servants, which is sad because I like that little unit. I think they all work together. But it's interesting. You have maybe Josh, Chef Josh and Mrs. Bruce pairing off and Watson, you know, born Collier going off again. We're kind of just down to church and Adelaide, who maybe is out the door. So maybe a church and the new French maid. I We're running out of people for church to hang out with downstairs that aren't coupled off. 
you are so right. And it's again, making me wonder, like, I mean, as soon as they brought in the French made woman, I was like, okay, like, I, I can see that we're trying to like, shake it up a little bit in the downstairs. And we're adding some new faces. We were worried that Watson was leaving. But and that seems clear to me that he won't be back for season three. I like it when we change things up and we get some different dynamics. I think that's always fun. But boy, will we miss our Mr. Watson, that's he, I mean, if there's ever a nefarious plot against Bertha at a dinner, you need Watson there to suss it out. He's the one who 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 really foiled the entire plan to ruin the Duke's dinner uh, gala. But who knows? Maybe we'll get to see Watson come to the house uh, the same way we saw Turner return to the house as Mrs. Witterton. Maybe next season, season three that we all hope we get, maybe Mr. Collier returns to the house for dinner. Let's stay with the bunting and the fireworks. Uh, the episode begins with Mr. Tate being summoned. Mr. Tate is the guy who's in charge of the trustees for the bridge. He is summoned to the Russell household, thinks he has a meeting with, with Mr. Russell. And in fact, he does, but it is Larry. He seems not very happy that he has been put there and, and has to talk to Larry. Larry doesn't let it, you know, Mr. Tate proves Mrs. Roebling's fears true. They, they cannot go forward and say that Mrs. Roebling is the one who designed the bridge and and really birthed it into creation, which is what she worried would be true. I like that Larry doesn't drop it, but let's stick with this scene. Is this more of Larry being shown to be George's son and becoming a real man? The fact that he is not only attending to his father's business, but doing so in his father's study? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I think we're supposed to be starting to see him as like, you know, a doppelganger for George. Like he can now stand in for him in business. He can make any kind of deals. He can like have conversations. He can go check stuff out for George. I mean, I think that this is a very smooth folding him into George's business because at the beginning when it was like clear to him, like you need to join George in business, he was like real stubborn and, you know, dug in his heels was like, no way. But now that it's kind of coming more naturally where it's like, hey, can you go check in on this? Or hey, can you like take this meeting? Somehow it's like it's a quiet way of folding him in. But buddies, he's doing a really nice job with it. I, I think that he held his ground. He did not seem younger then or without like the, a great backbone or anything like that. I mean, he just he just said what needed to be said and, and handled the meeting great. I, I don't think we can ignore the fact that George is putting enormous trust in his son because, yes, mm -hmm. this may be a, phil a philanth philanthropic, you know, activity for George. He, his business is not bridge building, you know, but he is a trustee. He is he is a respected man of town and obviously of industry. And he allows Larry to speak on his behalf at that at the at the Roebling reception in front of the president of the United States to say nothing of anyone else gathered there who are the highest of highs of society. He hands off the microphone to his son, an enormous vote of confidence in Larry that Larry has to be aware of and acknowledge and appreciate. Like my father allowed me to speak on his behalf in front of the president of the United States. I don't know how much better of an endorsement does Larry ever need from George that he trusts him in these matters. I think that was pretty, I, I think that's a small detail you can overlook, but I think is pretty epic to the development of their relationship. And, and like you always say, the Russells are all better, always better when all four of them are on screen together, working together towards a goal. And I think this, this, this end scene here with them at the fireworks is a great example of that. 
I was like giddy when I saw all four of them there. I was like, yes, this is what I need to see more of because there's something about them that just feels unstoppable when the four are together. Even though like, yes, George and, and Bertha by themselves feel like so powerful and their kids have always seemed sort of like, mm-hmm, most especially Gladys, like mm-hmm. she she doesn't really come off like this big, powerful, you know, have all these great ideas kind of person. But when the four stand together, there's something more to them. There's this unified, elevated sense of like, like, we can do anything. Mr. President, gentlemen, ladies. My father asked me to oversee our interest in the Brooklyn Bridge project, which I was happy to do. Like most of you, I too was in awe of the grandeur that was once a dream and has now become a reality. I know I speak for us all when I thank you, Mr. Roebling, for your vision. But what most of you do not know is that after an early injury, while Mr. Roebling was out of action, his wife, Mrs. Roebling, a brilliant engineer in her own right, is the one who enabled construction of the bridge to continue in her husband's absence. Yes, that's right. Mrs. Roebling took over the creation and finished it. I would like us all to raise a glass to Emily Roebling, to thank her for her enormous contribution to the creation of the Brooklyn Bridge, a new wonder of the world. Here, here. I viewed this whole speech as like Julian Fellows writing a wrong, like going back in history and and actually writing what should have happened instead of what did happen. Like Emily Roebling's not listed anywhere on the Brooklyn Bridge uh, building. You know, there's there's nothing there about her. And so it was like, let's finally give the proper amount of credit to the woman who actually did this. And I I love that. I love that. Like, like, like let's let's set it right. Uh, what a what a beautiful thing to do in historical fiction. Yes. But with also the acknowledgement and the cold dose of water that Miss Roebling then gives at the end when Larry comes up to her and says, I hope you don't mind. I made you to focus on my speech. She She's the one who has no has no blinders on about how history will remember her and and largely remember her contribution, which shows still a little bit of naivete on Larry's part, but his heart is very much in the right place. And he did do strides. He did do as much as he could in his part to get her the recognition. But I think it's also important then for her to acknowledge that which we know to be true. Like, yes, she is, she is remembered. And as, and, and, and 140 years plus on now, her contribution is more well known. But for the majority of the time since this happened, she was nothing much more than a footnote or as much or much more than a, conduit via her husband and it was really her husband's work so we get both right we get lord fellows through larry giving her the flowers that she should have gotten so well and justly deserved at the time we read a couple episodes ago when mrs Rowling was first introduced i went through some of the more public recognition of her at the time the the speech at the dedication and some other things but once all that is done and the dust is settled as people begin to use the bridge every single day history removes her or at least dims her contribution so 
so we get both, right? We we get we get what Larry what via Larry what we wish everyone would have taken and held on to for all of history. But then you get Mrs. Roebling saying, you know, I, I appreciate your sentiment, but I think history will largely, you know, forget what I did here. And that's also true. And that's sad. But because of conversations like this and because conversations that and Lord Fellows has begun with this storyline, she maybe will be remembered again. Maybe this will ignite a new renaissance in her contribution so long ago at, to such an important creation that we still literally use every day by millions of people. It's a it's a great through line that is in everything that we're we're learning about the Gilded Age where where they add in, you know, like, hey, and also a woman contributed here and also a woman contributed here or maybe someone of a lower station like Jack contributed here. You know, like there's all different ways where I feel like we're seeing them right those wrongs of like people being left out of history. This is really a story of powerful women doing remarkable things important to our country that shaped a, a large section of our history that would eventually go on to shape what this country would become in the 20th century. Let's let's continue with the with the woman train and go to Bertha and Mrs. Astor. This is a this is a fascinating development, right? Let, Oof, let's let's play this Mrs. This was tricky. Yeah, we can we can knock this out in just a couple of clips and talking about it. This is the first one that really begins the episode. Wasn't a box at the academy what you've always wanted? It was. And now you have it. So can we put this metropolitan business to rest? I must discuss it with Mr. Russell. I think he'll be very pleased for you. I should be on my way. There's so much to do for the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge. Mr. Russell is one of the trustees. We're watching the opening itself, and then we'll go to a reception that Mrs. Roebling is giving. Yes, I know. I'm helping her with it. She's never entertained for a president before. Quite a responsibility. I suppose. President Arthur is a nice man, and I believe he was successful as a lawyer, but his origins are not exactly inspiring. You know him, then? We meet in the way of things. I'll present you if you like. I should be honored. That's settled, then. <laughs> I mean, Mrs. Astor really has the upper hand here, right? Ward McAllister said, oh, I say, oh, I say, Mrs. Astor, you got to find a second way to get to uh, to, to Bertha. That's Foghorn, Leghorn, McAllister. He's going to get the Duke, right? That was the that was the thing. But he says to her, you need to find another avenue at which to attack Bertha and bring her to heel. This is, of course, the way she should go. This is an ingenious move. You've always wanted the Academy box. You did all of this met nonsense in order to force my hand to get an academy box. Now you've got an academy box, so let's move on. It really is a smart plan. I'm curious if you agree with that. I'm curious if you see the flaw in her plan, and maybe we need to play the next clip in order to analyze retroactively what Mrs. Astor's flaw in the plan is, or if you have any thoughts on where I'm going with this. No, go ahead and play that second clip. Well, first, we got to play Bertha and George, right? George reminds Bertha of what her own plan was. Let's play that first. I can't stop thinking about Pittsburgh and what could have happened if they started firing. Well, they didn't. Are things under control now? I think they will be. I thought the opera war was under control, too. But Mrs. Astor has made me an offer, and now I don't know what to do. What sort of offer? A box at the Academy of Music. And 
I must consider it, George. She obviously went through a lot of trouble to get it for us. Of course she did. To buy you off. So you think I should turn it down? Your argument for a new opera house holds good. The academy's too small, too unambitious, and it excludes the people who are making the city great. Why would you give up your goal now? My goal was always a box at the academy. At the Met, you'll be a founding member, and you can reign supreme. You don't need to be in Mrs. Astor's shadow. You make a good case. It's your case. I'm just repeating it. All right, let's hold on to that. Now let's play the con the confrontation at the charity meeting between Mrs. Astor and Bertha. And we must arrange a time for you to come and inspect your box at the Academy. You've taken a box at the Academy? How can that be? I thought you were leading the Metropolitan charge. Happily, I was able to secure a box for Mrs. Russell. She's waited long enough. And Carrie will be thrilled to see you there, my dear. I can't believe it. Have you waved the white flag in your opera war? No. I'm grateful to Mrs. Astor for her kindness, of course. But I can't change horses now. My place is at the Metropolitan. I don't understand. Isn't a box at the Academy what you've always wanted? I'm sorry, but I've thought about it, and I want to stay loyal to the Met. You'll regret it. In fact, I feel sorry for you, making a fool of yourself in public like this. It was you who decided to do it in front of an audience. Because I could not have imagined you to be so deluded as to turn me down. Good day, Mrs. Fane. <laughs> but we haven't started the meeting. Well, I cannot stay. Can someone fetch my carriage? Of course. Mrs. Astor, I'd hate to embarrass you. That's the last thing I would want to do. Well, you have a funny way of showing it. All right, that's a lot there. But those are the three clips that you have to take into account when you're breaking down everything that's going on here. Mrs. Astor plays a genius move here to me, giving her exactly what she wants. It really, I mean, you see Bertha really struggling with this. She says to George, this is, this is what my goal was. This is, this was the plan all along to force her hand to get this. I think Mrs. Astor's fatal flaw in her plan was going for the petty embarrassment of it all. She could have maybe won and gotten rid of the Met, but she, can't resist doing the public embarrassment shaming at the charity in front of all of these other women who matter and who have been involved on the sidelines or even more intimately involved in the opera war. And maybe she, feel like she feels like she has to in order to get the public record that she has wooed Bertha, but she makes a giant assumption that Bertha is going to accept the box. And also, by doing it so publicly, almost forces Bertha's hand to have to retaliate herself and go then embarrass Mrs. Astor in order to stave it off of herself. You know what I mean? It's Dashel 2.0. It's it's proposed in front of everybody with everybody there. And that way you have to say yes. It's the same thing. It's the same game. You know, she she assumed if Bertha had reservations, certainly she wasn't going to embarrass Mrs. Astor in front of everyone because manners dictate you wouldn't do that. So it's weaponizing manners and it's trying to use this public forum in order to force somebody to do what you want them to do. Now, I think that, you know, Bertha handled it as coolly as you possibly could, because it is tricky business to say no to Mrs. Astor. I mean, yes, Bertha is, you know, trying to forge her own path, but she doesn't want to be enemies with Mrs. Astor. I mean, she's trying to kind of work both ways. And 
the reality is you really can't. And and it's kind of like the rubber's meeting the road now. Like now you actually finally have to say, I am against you, Mrs. Astor. I am not going to do the things you ask to be done. That's a that's a line that she hasn't had to say. She's been willing to be frenemies, but not not willing to like literally say no to Mrs. Astor. Which now she's is saying so no. So interesting though. I'm glad you said that because that's so interesting though, because three episodes ago, four episodes ago, there was specific conversation on the reason she sets the opening date at the twenty second is the same day as the Academy, is to force people to make a choice. And remember there's a whole conversation with Marion chimes in and says, That's a good thing, and Ward's like, Wow, 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 wow. Wow, ma'am, is that a good thing? Oh, and it's because it forces people to choose. But you're right. Bertha hasn't actually had to choose herself because it was never on the table that the Academy was an open option to her. So now she herself has to finally choose in the same way she has made everyone else choose. But to, to her credit, she does. She does it publicly and she doesn't do it with waffling. Like she's like, I have to stay on this track. This is the horse I chose. She doesn't say like, oh, thank you so much. This is such a big deal, which is nice. 90% of women would have said some version of a flowery, sorry, but really it would be like, it's my own fault. I'm already too far in the Met, but it's all on me, Mrs. Astor. You've been great. Like, you know, like that kind of crap. We're like, no, she was like, uh-uh, I can't go with you. I give her a ton of credit for being so, so bold. Which makes the conversation between her and George so important. On top of the sexiness of it, she strides into that room. She puts the book out of his hand, puts it on the thing and climbs on his lap. Good gravy, Miss Mercy. That is. And then they all mooch on each other. Hot business. These two. God, it's so sexy. <laughs> the advice that she that George gives her is her own advice. And I like that he doesn't take credit for it and says, it's in fact your own plan. I'm just reminding of, of you of it is an important lesson because Bertha had so far surpassed what her original goal was by what she created through the Met and what she was making and really heading and leading and already been made to the board of it. And, and, and maybe we'll have the central box if George gets his way with the banker, with um, uh, the guy at the Met whose name I'm blinking on, you know, she is truly the queen bee of a thing. And he says, there's no reason for you to take something less and live in Mrs. Astor's shadow. What you have created via the Met is better, is a better goal that you are so close to achieving. It's huge advice to not settle for all of us. Sometimes our goals change and we have to, we have to remember and have the strength to chase the larger goal that presents itself when we enable ourselves to get that larger goal. Don't go back and settle for the lesser thing. You've already moved past it. You've already achieved that. Go for the larger goal. Go for the go for the gold ring instead of the brass ring. You're there. You're within grasp. It's a it's a key scene that George is there just to mirror back to Bertha and remind her of what her own aims and goals were. If not for her conversation with George, where George reminds her of what her own actual stated goal was, do you think she is inclined to accept the Academy box and abandon her goals with the Met? I will give the conversation the amount of credit that, you know, it's always good to hear somebody else say like, like, no, you got this, you know, and sort of feel, feel good. But I honestly believe that Bertha had it in her because, because of the way that she spoke to Mrs. Astor. If, if this was being fortified by someone else and she herself was not so sure, I think you would have gotten that flowery, really, oh, I'm so sorry, oh, kind of, kind of wimpy, like cop out 
saying no to Mrs. Astor in front of everybody. But instead, you know, she was very clear and very, very like just calm in herself, which says to me it was actually her and not George's words. It was actually coming 100 percent from her um, because because it just came out so cleanly and easily. And she just seemed so strong in her position. Sometimes we need people to remind us, I think, of what we were actually originally trying to achieve. And I think that's the importance of the conversation. I think, no, I think this is all Bertha, uh, you know, on her own. I'm proud of her for showing the loyalty. It's funny. She says in front of the room, I would never want to embarrass you, Mrs. Astor. That's the last thing I would want to. But she's saying it not in like hushed tone. She's saying it in front of the room as she's chasing after Mrs. Astor. But also Mrs. Astor created the situation. She overplayed her hand. She made assumptions that she shouldn't have made. And again, underestimated Bertha. Why are you still underestimating this woman that is deluded that she is still not giving Bertha the credit that she should be that of treating her as an equal? She's still treating her as someone that she can lord over. And if nothing else, I think Bertha has more than shown that she is Mrs. Astor's equal. I think Mrs. Astor's own uh, hubris and the ego won't let her see that. It's interesting that Ward is not in this episode. Ward is nowhere to be found here to counsel her that this this has to be delicately handled. The idea of giving her the box is a great idea, but how you present it and how you force her hand publicly has to be handled with care. And I think that's ultimately where Mrs. Astor goes wrong. Mrs. Astor 100% overplayed her hand in thinking that she had some sort of like choke collar on Bertha. That's the thing that I'm, I'm kind of confused why Mrs. Astor was willing to be so public in terms of like, like she honestly thought that she could yank the leash on Bertha. Right. That's in what I'm saying. Yeah. Everyone. And she really thought that would work. Like, I'm surprised at the lack of self-awareness of Mrs. Astor, to be honest. I, I really think that there's something she really just misunderstood <laughs> like where she is in the world, which doesn't exactly match how much we know that like her full time job is tracking reputations. So it kind of like surprises me that she didn't have a better thumb on the pulse of that situation, even with Ward talking in her ear and everything else. Like, I just really thought she would have a little bit more like let Bertha burn in the Met. Offering her the box, I just don't know why she thought Bertha would go for it. Mrs. Astor, I don't think, appreciates how far and how much work has been done on the Met and how grand a thing it's going to be. I think she's blind to all of those things. And I think there's a little bit of her own ego. I think she really is still playing with the script from from the beginning of the season where it was Bertha hat in hand saying, shouldn't we be able to get in the box at the Academy? Like, what more do I have to do in order to get there? That's where that's the page she still thinks they're on. She's missed the four chapters, you know, or, or six chapters that have come since where Bertha really wrote her own book and has created something grand. That is a whole aspect I think Mrs. Astor can't even begin to wrap her hand around. And maybe also information that Ward hasn't relayed to her, right? Ward has only fed her. They're going to open at the same, on the same day. And we know they're spending all this money, but they won't be a financial success because they're spending all this money up front to get these acts, but hasn't said anything about how grand a place it is. Or maybe the fact that the Wintertons, who they shunned from the Academy, went and actually recruited a fuck ton of people to come join the Met. They, this may be information that Mrs. Astor doesn't have on her own or via Ward, which 
if she did That's surprising though do you get you know what i mean like her full-time gig is knowing where everybody stands but this is something that requires times. but this also requires something of people speaking truth to power and the only one who's been remotely able to do that really has been ward right. and he's not giving her the full report i mean we've we've seen That's him in, we've seen him talk to her about the met and what's going on there but has has not indicated any of the grandiosity about there. And we haven't had a report on the fact that, oh, by the way, a bunch of the people that the Wintertons were friends because you threw them out of the academy have now taken themselves and a lot of other people to the Met. We didn't see that information being conveyed to Mrs. Astor, so maybe she really doesn't know it. It is it is a giant misstep. And I think this aspect of trying to go for the public dagger in Bertha is, is just lud- ludicrous on her. Secure that you're getting her to abandon in the Met and she's going to take the Academy box and then crow about it publicly. Don't don't just assume it. Come on. But at the end of this episode, she still has the Duke on her arm and she still has the president and she's and Bertha is still relying on her to introduce her to the, the president, which goes back to the first clip from the beginning of the episode. So in some ways, yes, the opera war itself feels like it's going to come down to the finale. But on the whole, I think Mrs. Astor maybe does win this episode because Bertha is very distracted in the end. When everyone is staring at the the fireworks, Bertha is staring at the Duke standing elbow to elbow with Mrs. Astor. And she didn't know the Duke was in town. Bertha doesn't know the Duke is in town. Talk about information flow that you would expect her to be aware of. She's completely blindsided by all of that. So at the end of this episode, this feels like advantage Mrs. Astor. I definitely think that even Mrs. Astor making her take pause, making her question her decision, making her talk to George at all about it. Any of these things. I mean, that that those are little chinks in the armor you know like mrs astor is making some headway on making bertha wonder if she's handling this right just shaking her a little bit and making her wonder is actually a really big move for mrs astor because bertha has been so absolutely eyes forward eyes on the prize she knows what she wants so you're right we have to give mrs astor some amount of credit that like hey you shook her, you shook her real bad, you know, and you made her question everything. It's just the conclusion she came to is not what Mrs. Astor's wanted. No. I, the interesting thing going into the finale is the role of the Duke, right? Because we know from the frenemies comment with with Bertha and Gladys and Larry that the Duke has said that he will be in New York and she's going to write to him and secure him to be in her box on the opening night. Now the Duke is in New York early. She didn't know it. And he's standing next to... Uh, Mrs. Astor. So going into the finale that you have to wonder, like, is Bertha has shown loyalty to the Met. She has made a decision. Now will that decision bite her in the ass becomes the question, because if the Duke is the thing that everyone's going to follow where the Duke goes may determine in the end, silly as that really seems to me, uh, where the Duke goes may be the thing that determines who wins the opera war in the end. Who who put their money on the Duke would decide (laughs) the birth. The opera wars. Very strange. Very strange. Anyway, let's let's uh, we're just about done. Let's wrap up with George and his business. So we know peace has been restored.
stored in Pittsburgh. We know he has given the tradesmen a 10% raise for six months. Uh, Clay reports that the, that the mills are back open, working at full performance. He's a little upset that the concessions that George made will alienate Jay Gould and the others. It will be seen as him breaking his word. George sees it as good business and something that in the six months, in six months time, will lead to derision among the union men. The fact that he hasn't declared the union or recognized the union, and that it's also going to play on the anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish sentiments of immigrants coming into the country, because this is a very German, uh, pro-German workforce at this time, um, and, and, and American workforce. The tradesmen are American, quote unquote, not immigrants. So George at the start of this episode is in a pretty good spot following blinking at the, at the rifles firing on the men and Clay walking off into disgust. I'm skipping the first conversation between George and Clay. I'm going to jump right to Jay Gould and the meeting with those men. I have not given in to the workers' demands. You've given them a raise. A modest raise to the tradesmen for a short contract. That is all. And I have not recognized the union. But you forced us to follow suit. In six months' time, the tradesmen and the common laborers will be at each other's throats, and we will have the upper hand once again. But in the meantime, we must install absurd and expensive safety measures in order to compete. A reputation for safety is good for business. We owe them that much. But we do not owe them a share of the profits. We're agreed on that. Say what you like. You failed us. Russell, we were to be united against the Union, but you've gone off on your own. I've done what was sensible for my business, but I've set my own agenda, and I'd advise you to do the same before your workers set theirs. Well, you're on your own now. You put us against you. I don't think we're getting any more of this. This feels like a setting the table for a thread to be pulled at in season three because it, it represents too much to be dealt with in just one more episode. We're just starting off. He's he's avoided worker strife, but now he has business interest competition strife so that's a whole new kettle of fish for him to deal with that being said man is it frustrating listen to these guys reject what george is saying is good common sense proposal safety a reputation for safety is good for business yes, I, I i have set these men against each other good for business i didn't recognize the union good for business all these guys see is the very very bottom line that's just in front of their face I can understand what the other businessmen are saying in terms of like, yeah, but if you just are showing any signs that you're willing to change, the pressure is just going to become that much harder and it's going to leak on over to all of us. So I get their points of view. I'm not in any way saying that they're right. I think obvious change we all know is going to happen. But the thing that I mean, I got to say, God, when it just comes to the writing, it's so it's so interesting how when you watch something that is like historical like this and you hear people talk in a certain way, how it makes you bristle and and it's like, and there's loads of stuff in all of Peggy's storyline, of course. But it, when we were getting into this, and they're like anti-Jewish and anti I mean, I was like bristling and bristling and bristling. Oh, that's like, in the first clip. I didn't I play that yet. All it's, it's, this, like, it, but it was yeah. like straining my chest. Like I was like, oh, I hate it. It hits like a slap talk. in the face. Yeah. It does, and it's like I hate it when people talk like this about about groups of people at all. Like I cannot stand this. It, it was like one of those things that it's it reminded you of where we were in history and what kind of conversations were being had. And you know, I'm I'm glad they're saying it. Because because it, it kind of gives us a chance to, I don't know, in a way when we all feel like, boy, it doesn't feel like we've moved very far in, you know, in the world. 
I do feel like there's small moments where you're like, well, we don't do that anymore. So that seems better. <laughs> you know, like that seems like we're doing a little bit better. This entire thing, I think you're right. This is a season three moving forward. I think that they've done a great job of showing how George is really making every reasonable attempt. He's not going above and beyond, but a reasonable attempt to try to address things going on with the workers. I know both of us were like, what's with the park? Where's the school? Right. Let's hold that. Well, hold that. Let's listen to the clip between George and Henderson and then wrap it up because I like where you're going to go with that. But let's let's because this plays into George, the humanitarian, but is also still a ruthless businessman. Press is declaring this a victory for labor. They praise your spirit of moderate compromise. Is that so? Well, we both know better, Mr. Russell. The tradesmen will enjoy a 10% increase for six months. What's wrong with that? You know it'll set the laborers against them. And almost all our skilled craftsmen are American born and bred. Your terms leave the immigrants on the outside. They'll benefit too. The workplace will be safer, their health will be in good hands. They'll even have a park where their children can play. But you don't intend to recognize the union? Not yet. Carriage is here, Mr. Henderson. Shall I tell you why I accepted the terms? Because you didn't allow them to fire on the men when you could have. You've made the right decision, Mr. Henderson. All I want is for the workers to have decent lives. And you've managed that. He knows your plan is to divide them. Of course he does. But it won't matter in six months. At which point? You'll reduce the payments. Indeed. But I hope you noticed something. You thought we'd lost when I ordered the militia to stand down. It seemed weak to me, I confess it. They opened fire in the railway strikes of 77. And all that did was garner sympathy for the strikers. Anyway, you heard him. My moment of tenderness turns out to have been my trump card. I like that last part, and I, I left the clip going for so long because of that, because we talked so much about whether him blinking first was going to lose the war, which is what Clay had predicted and what causes Clay to walk away and discuss it. Like, what have you done? George can't help but but rub Clay's nose in it a little bit. And that line ends with Clay kind of being like, you son of a bitch. Like, that's the kind of look he gives him after he says that. But it's, you know, George didn't know how that blink of kindness standing down and not having the the militia open fire on the men he didn't know it was going to turn into good business for him it was kind of like he stepped in shit and won the lottery but george george is a pro and so he's he's going to take every little bit of it as a victory lap and turn it into it was all just part of my plan you know i knew if i didn't kill all those men in cold blood it would work out in my in my favor and henderson even says that i only accepted your terms because you could have had them kill us and you didn't kindness wins the day Dumbledore always taught us Harry love love is what you have that Voldemort knows not and George George wins here because he shows a little bit of kindness though I, I I hope you agree I don't think he was thinking about that at all as a as a good business move when he says stand down I don't think he was thinking of it as a business move either I, I honestly think that he saw he saw Henderson tuck his son around behind his back. And that was about when he was like, enough is enough. Like, we're not shooting at children hiding behind their fathers. Like, this has gone too far. Both men basically winked at each other. Like, we both know, and I don't say that in a loving, sweet way. I mean, wink like we both know that we're both doing this 
for our own ends, but some good will come of it. And let's just agree to that. And that's where we're going to have to leave it, you know, for this conversation. And I, I think that that's fair. I, but again, I have to come back to very unusual to have a line like, where's the school? And then to come back and say, I built a park. And I was yeah. like, And he says it like three times about your fucking park. Where's the school, George? Well, and why this is important is because school has been in this conversation the whole time. Whether we're talking about Tuskegee, whether we're talking about the colored school that's going to be closed down, or whether we're talking about the school at the work town, the mill town. School and education has been really an important component of this entire series. Where Peggy went to school was really important. It actually brought her to Agnes. It gave her all this credit to Agnes. Lots of stuff's going on here. So I wonder if it was a strategic move not to build a school, but to build a park. Like, I'm willing to put that on the corkboard and say, okay, maybe this is going to come up later. But something tells me that when when the show is telling us that education is key to everyone's future and so important and everyone's going to fight, we're going to have lots of storylines on it. And then you have someone build a park and not a school. It makes me wonder. What are we supposed to make of that? Well, I think from George's point of view, yes, I think in the moment he was taken with a room full of children in the house sitting with Mrs. Henderson, not in school. And so I think off the cuff, he says, you know, is there even is there even a school for them to go to? I neither know nor care. When you have time to think about it and you're giving demands, it's not in George's interest to have more Hendersons, educated men with, you know, opposite interests to his own out there and being encouraged. Right. That's that's obviously the, the conclusion, right? Like, that's the conclusion. But At least he's whoa. giving them somewhere to go now that's no, not inside the house. I'm not, I'm not giving it that. Oh, I'm, well, I'm not it, either. I'm I think giving it's, it. I, no, I'm saying, whoa, whoa, that George would like be that conniving and like villainish to be like, I'm not going to educate these kids like whoa that's that's kind of big talk. his son went to harvard and then he's over here building a park for kids to run around in cool that's great but you purposely didn't build a school and wow that says a lot and we know what it says we get it we get it. he doesn't want them educated he doesn't want anyone moving we up forget but though whoa. we forget because he's so charismatic and because he mm-hmm. does love his wife and he does love his children and he is honorable to them and in the end, he is a better man than, say, Jay Gould insofar as keeping his workers alive and providing them maybe safer conditions. But he is, too, concerned about his bottom line. And he, too, is concerned about his fortune. And he, too, is a robber baron. He he is a villain from a very real point of view. And in, in history's point of view, these were not good men. These were successful men. These were men who largely orchestrated the building of America. But they were not good men, and history does not regard them, and I don't think they're taught in schools as being good men. They were maybe necessary evils at best. But Mm -hmm. George is a villain to Henderson and to every other man standing behind Henderson on that work line. George is not a savior. Uh, He is a villain. Uh, They were in that situation because of George and George's ilk. You know, that that's how they're viewed. So it's it's interesting, but it's a nice cold water reminder that we can love George and we can love George and Bertha. But George is as wealthy as George is not because he gives out puppies and rainbows to these families. He works them hard and he gets the better end of the stick, even with their 10 percent raise for six months and their safety conditions and their parks. He is getting more from the men than the men are getting from him. That's how it works for him. 
Absolutely. I, I always am wowed by the writing and the way that they choose to do things because it's the the way that they did not have a conversation about the school, but that we had a comment about where's the school? Do they have a school? And then I built a park and you as the audience member have to pay enough attention to recognize the fact that he knew there was no school and he built a park and we don't have a conversation about education and the fact that he's not going to go down that path for them. That's clever writing. That's something where we have to sit there and say, what is he thinking? Oh, my goodness. So really amazing. I'm glad you gave like the context of of historically what we all know about them and everything. But at the same time, just for our characters, it really gave us a glimpse into George where you had to read between all the lines. There wasn't anything spoken about what he did. But we know what he did. And I, I find that like very like, ooh, like that was very good. We're just about done here. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about at the beginning of the episode, but I wanted to make sure I mentioned it just because it was it hit me so differently. The editing in this episode was super fast paced. I don't think we stayed with one scene more than one to three minutes tops. We jumped around like crazy in this episode. It was for next, especially for note taking. And, you know, I end up taking yeah. like 10, 11 pages of notes on all of these episodes before I boil it down to the notes that we use in, the, in our outline. But it was crazy to keep track of everything. Did it work for you? Did you notice it even? Maybe maybe I just picked yeah. up on it. Maybe it's not even no, a real I, thing. I, but No, I totally use the word fanatic as well with you. I said I was like sweating. My hair was sweating as I'm watching Oscar run around and try to question, where's Maude Beaton? Where's Maude Beaton? Like I, my, my face, when my feeling in my body, when Agnes and Oscar are having to have that whole conversation about losing all the money, like every part of me was like, ah, which I think the editing like led to that. Like it was like... Like, we're going to keep it real quick. You're not going to be comfortable in any situation. You're not going to settle in with any characters on the screen. We're going to quick whiplash you to the next one and the next one and the next one. At the end of this, you should feel like winded, like, whew. because our characters, though, are all going through so much. I mean, penultimate is the one where everybody's wigging out. The finale is when the chips actually fall. So we're in the wig out phase right now. And I think we're feeling exactly how they want us to feel. You know, it hit me the most in and especially when I was rewatching it was the scenes with the fireworks beginning to go off and those festivities and those happy people. Cause that was when we were cutting back and forth with Luke and Ada's final words. And then the fireworks dissolve into the morning time and Ada waking up in her chair and Luke having passed during the night. It was very, the juxtaposition was very whiplashy of going from this, this celebratory fireworks celebration to this very personal small story uh, and small insofar as involving characters story of this man and this woman this wife and husband saying goodbye and then passing on it, it was very whiplashy very winded at the end of the episode that's a great way of describing it but what better way to take us into the finale and which <laughs> you know by the time this comes out the finale will have probably been viewed already so let's get right to that uh, as soon as we're done working here we got to talk about just quick predictions for anything. I mean, here we have the Van Ryan household completely uh, thinking we have no money. Like, are we going into the finale with solutions to that? Or is that solution going to come in season three? I trust that Agnes and Ada somehow are going to figure out something. Oscar doesn't feel like he's the solution to anything. But I do think that these women are maybe will figure out something. And I'll throw Marion in there, too, as a possibility. But there's there's something here. And I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, I, I mean, I know we have to deal with that. that that's like a number one thing. Yeah, we have I think to deal maybe with. there's something if there's a line, maybe it's 
it's it's Oscar making the very specific line choice of nearly all of it versus all of it. True, that's true. So there's a little bit, maybe, I mean, maybe that can float them by. Maybe there's something he can make an investment with that is like way on the up and up, you know, or maybe not him so much, maybe Agnes. Of course, we have, you know, Dashiell Marion and, and what is she going to do with all that? We've got Larry sitting out there as like a potential. What do you think? Is there any like one thing? Like, let's just keep it like real easy here. Like one thing that you really need to know what's going to happen. I, it feels like the Van Ryan may or may not resolve before the end of the season, but I think it definitely has to be a focus of the finale. I think Dashiell and Marion does need to resolve. Either we're going to see them get married or see them not get married. But I, I feel like that is something that does have to get resolved. Whether Larry plays into that or not will be interesting. And obviously the thing I think we know for sure will be resolved is the opera war because we called it, we called it, I think the second episode of the season, the finale was going to revolve around the opera war that we were going to go march 25th to october 22nd this season uh, so to me that feels like that is a definite is going to resolve now the question is historically we know the met wins we know the met defeats the academy that's history that's not a spoiler that's just what it is within three years the academy is no longer doing opera at all and it becomes a vaudeville house for 30 more years before it just shutters its doors and the met while it is a financial financial mess for its first couple of seasons is the triumphant winner that's what history tells us how does that play out as among Bertha and Mrs. Astor specifically and the Duke and what the Duke does, that's the thing we need to see how how it resolves. So I'll I'll be there looking for that. Me too. Well, you guys, you guys are so, so, so awesome for listening. I know that Mike has a five-star review to read for you guys. Very much looking forward to doing our finale episode for you guys. I'm, I'm sad that it's over so fast. I wish we had more episodes. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star rating, but particularly at Apple or Spotify, because you can leave comments there in addition to the five-star review. And if you do, we're going to read it on air, just like these two five-star reviews I'm going to read right now. The first one is from Cheryl T777, my favorite Gilded Age podcast, five stars. This is my favorite Gilded Age podcast. It's absolutely perfect listening for long car rides and even short commutes during the long week between episodes. I love the depth of Mike and Caroline plum on the characters' interactions. Don't change a thing. Well, we thank you, Cheryl T777. We're not going to change a thing because this is the only way we know how to do it. Uh, the, another review, this one comes from Chef Tony, not Chef Josh Borden, Chef Tony. Uh, the Gilded Age has me in a chokehold. Five stars. I can, I cannot get enough of all things Gilded Age. I love this show and this podcast helps get me through to the next episode. I love that they are long. There's so much detail, additional historical facts and perspectives. I often end up going back and rewatching episode excuses of something I heard or learned on the podcast. Well, that's what we want you to do. It's the replay value, right? It's the rewatch value with things you didn't know before. I think that's the genius of going back and seeing where the clues were and what was important and what wasn't. Thank you guys. Thank you, Chef Tony. Thank you, Cheryl T77. Thank you for all of you guys who have been writing in and and taking heed of our uh, call to uh, you know leave reviews, leave our five star reviews. Our this podcast is is on the charge every single week. It is you know faces stiff competition with the HBO formal podcast, the official podcast. You know I think we bring a different aspect than that podcast does. Though it's great for information and interviews, I think we probably delve 
delve into it a little bit more and get on the level of the viewer and what we're thinking. Um, and we just, wait, I just thank you guys so much for, for supporting us. And just by, by clicking on it and listening to these long episodes, you are helping us tremendously get visibility. So please go leave reviews, leave five star reviews. We really, really, really super appreciate it. Um, and, uh, with that, we hope fireworks are in your future because they're wonderful. And so are you. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.